This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. It is December 20th, 2016, and this is part three of episode five of Psychology is Dead. I'm your host, Quentin Moody, and Timothy, we're almost done with our top 50 wrestlers of 2016. <laughs> this has been quite the bear. I told myself I wasn't going to do something like this after the GWE list. Me and me and Pete went through 100 wrestlers, uh, and I thought, oh, we're just doing 50. Won't be that big of a deal. We'll have so much crossover. We'll barely be talking about that many guys. Turns out, not as much crossover as I expected. <laughs> um, me and the voice situation has obviously also been difficult, and having a wife who I don't want to completely neglect has also cut things a little <laughs> bit shorter uh, on some of these. But I really do feel like the top ten, especially. I didn't want to. We got into the late hours last night, especially for myself, being that I I work so early, and I didn't want to rush through the top ten because I think the top 10 or the top 10 yeah. that's what sucks about doing these kind of lists is as you're going through you actually are starting out with you know sometimes you're starting out with the most energy and oh i have the most amount of time i don't have to worry on the low numbers and then you're beating yourself down and you know getting to the point where you're like come on let's get this over with while you're getting to the people that you should be the most excited about so doing the top 10 as its own separate is nice also if people want to skip the doldrums, it's a little bit easier this way. They can just hop in right into the top ten. Um, I do not recommend that because there's been some fantastic banter back and forth on the other, last two episodes. So I would say go back and listen to everything. But, um, you know, I could definitely see some people who, you know, like uh, if you are if you have the same attention span as Sam, but for podcasts and you just want to see the, the good stuff and you're not going to sit around listening to all the everybody, I could see just wanting to hear the top ten. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Look, it is, it is probably easier for people who don't want to sit through 50 wrestlers because 50 is a lot, and top 10 is a more condensed number, and there's gonna um, there's gonna be more names people recognize. So I would understand people going for the top 10, but I would like everyone to do the top 50 because I think we've had some people on our list that some people like may not have on their radars. So that would be worth listening to just for that. You know, for people like Jenny or Travis Banks. Listening to listening to us talk about them would be productive in helping you understand and learn about two people who I think are very good. Yeah, like why do I have Ray Rowe so high? You may have seen him in ROH, but maybe you don't know about everything else he's doing. You know, David Starr, Io Shirai, we both kind of went off on. So yeah, there's a lot of people that if, if you're just listening to this, I mean, you're probably going to know about everybody that we're going to mention at this point, but... There are some people in the 50 that maybe are getting overlooked. Yeah. So when we left off, your number 11 was Roderick Strong. We talked, about, we talked about him a good deal. So just top 10 right now. So do you want to give your 10 first? Um, yeah, sure. I don't mind. Uh, my number 10 is Drew Gulak, um, the original leader of Catchpoint, the kind of the Mac Daddy of the current kind of grappling scene. Uh, I think... Early on, I think he got somewhat, you know, as the grapple fuck thing kind of broke out, he got um, overshadowed by Biff Busick and Timothy Thatcher and Zack Sabre Jr. <laughs> and even, to some extent, you had some other, like, 
interesting guys coming in. Fred Yehi, Chris Hero being the granddaddy, the, the grandpa, grapple fuck, coming back and saying, you know, yeah, you can't do this without me. Guys like Kyle O'Reilly bringing in the jiu-jitsu background. Mark Haskins, another one we talked about with the jiu-jitsu thing, but I think... Jack Gallagher. Jack Gallagher doing the more World of Sport inspired. And as all those guys were standing out initially for the like, hey, let's bring back the grappling style. Drew Gulak was in the background, but secretly the most proficient, the best grappler, the guy who has the best mind for wrestling. I mean, they talk about his training. You can't be as good at training as he is without understanding something as well as he does. Um, What he brings an intensity and a fire and a passion to his wrestling that makes everything believable and real. Um, Then you also have kind of I don't even know I think I guess technically there was a couple um, amazing Gulak's tag matches where he's just fun and lighthearted and fun but he's also in the place where he started in CZW so you kind of get that reminder of that he can be lighthearted and fun he can be ultra violent he can also be hyper realistic grappler um, then he gets into WWE and he's doing the uh, you know the, the cruiserweight classic and he's you know he can be mainstream accessible as this just kind of cartoony villain i mean not it's cartoony for drew gulak it's not cartoony for you know wrestling in general but it's definitely turning it up and being a little bit more of a a very sneering and over the top heel for his character and you just see how he kind of turned that up and it's just very interesting to see everything he does um i'd say his biggest weakness is that he can he can kind of take over matches a lot because he's just so good at being a ring general that sometimes it feels like he takes over more than he should. But, um, I mean, when he's going to then turn around and deliver you, you know, upward force four and a half to, you know, I don't think he's had a five-star match to me this year, but he's been damn close. It's kind of hard to blame the guy for saying, hey, I'm going to take control here when he's delivering at such a high level all the time. Out of curiosity, what would you say have been Gulak's best matches this year? Because I know um, off the top of my head, the best one I'd say is um, either Hot Sauce um, from Evolve 61 or his match versus um, Zach from like Evolve 73. Okay. I'd say both Thatcher matches. The the one where they took the ring completely apart, I think, was amazing. Yeah. Okay, it was like probably that, the... Yeah. Probably the... the one of the more transcendent kind of matches that they've done in Evolve ever since they've like kind of completely adopted the new, the new, the new kind of edict of Evolve, just kind of really showing um, a depth of again grapple fuck that can go into being a hardcore blood feud grapple fuck match, which I just thought was impressive. Um, again, referencing back to his his roots and CZW going so far as taking the you know the, taking the ring apart to the boards. And just bringing the violence and the intensity. That match, it's really hard to overlook. I know it's just very recent. But then him and Thatcher had another kind of no DQ street fight earlier before that that I loved a lot. I think him and Thatcher, just every match they have is fantastic. Um, then going outside of the box, as I said, the amazing uh, the amazing Gulaks against the Dub Boys, I thought was just some really prime fucking stuff where it's, it's fun and funny and lighthearted, but also serious wrestling. Yeah. And just kind of... It's funny because they're doing fun spots, but they they carry these guys who are, you know, the dub boys are not going to be on anybody's top 50. I'm sorry, but um, probably not even your top 50 CZW workers, but they were able to have this really impressive, interesting match just kind of built around their chicanery and something that is kind of like the Jack Gallagher. So that was really interesting. Um, the match just recently with um, uh, 
God, Mike Quackenbush, that was just something else too. So much passion and, and just like, yeah, just hard, felt, hard battle against each other. And that was just something else. And then even, I don't know if it technically counts because it was like right, right at the end of 2015, but the sprint with Sammy Callahan and PWG. Um, I saw it live in 2015, but I don't think it made tape in 2016. That's another one that stands out as great. So, I mean, it's tough, but that the the circle of hate or whatever match with Thatcher was probably like I would say his best best match just because it stands out from intensity from the technical side of it in the beginning um, all the way through I mean so the, I mean but again so much depth in his matches the King of Trios match um, the match with Hook um, what's his name Kurt Robinson where he kind of was the master in the student match and that, like another one where he takes a really young green kid and carries him to a really fun match so it's really tough to say with him he's had so many great matches this year but um but yeah that one particular stands out i think the most but it really depends on your taste because he ha- he does have a wide range of match styles which i think gets overlooked as well i think if you look at it on the surface level a lot of people see a very similar style to all of his matches without if you go a little bit deeper there's really interesting different stories to all of his matches yeah, and I think, honestly, people always dismiss the grapple guys as, you know, always having the same match wrestling each other, but that's not even true at all. A guy like Gulag just has so much variety. Like, we didn't even mention his tag team stuff. Teaming with Hot Sauce this year and Evolve as the tag team champions. Um, his match in AEW against Matt Fitchett that I know my co-host of the Precise Lucha, Brandon, loved that match. Uh, I just think that even the Chris Hero match that he had recently in Evolve where he's completely fighting underneath in the Chris Hero Bully Formula match. Gulak has a lot of variety, and for that matter, all those guys in that group do, but like you said, it is a matter of going below the surface, and Gulak has just done a whole bunch of stuff this year, and I wasn't really into the catch point stable. I thought it was whole. I thought it was just really jumbled up, and like I understand that it was like, you know, appealing, because it was never um... I don't know. I'm not going to say it wasn't fully fleshed out. It just went in a whole bunch of directions. And while I can see going in all the directions would be would be appealing to some people, uh, it just didn't do much for me. And Gulak being the leader of it and him being forgettable as a leader, I thought, wasn't going to help him get on my list. But I like Gulak a lot. So I had no issue with him um, being on your list at all there. So I guess that's my 10, right? Yeah, yeah. What's your 10? My number 10 is Rush. Oh, uh, obviously the Luchador. Yes. So, Rush, I think this year in 2016, has completely solidified himself as the best feud worker in Mexico. Well, not even best feud worker in Mexico. That seems kind of shortchanging what he's done. I'll just say he's the best feud worker in wrestling. This guy brings the hate to every single thing that he does. He's boisterous. He's rude. He's disrespectful. And it lends itself to having heated matches with literally anyone you can think of. Starting the year off, feuding with Maximo Sexy and having great back and forth um, segments after their matches. There was one segment that I know you haven't seen, but it was Maximo Sexy redecorated the Los Angeles dressing room with flowers and pink stuff and Rush walks in and he just loses his fucking mind and 
some like great stuff like that. Every t- every chance he gets, he's just beating the living hell out of Maximo Sexy. They have a great Apolistas match at Dos Leyendas, and it's just straight up fantastic heel work from Rush. The L.A. Park match, well, the L.A. Park feud was obviously a really infamous thing to happen this year. Three great matches across Mexico. The most notable one being in Lucha Libre Elite. Bloody, violent brawl. Hateful every time they fought each other. Obviously, the other matches didn't feel as big because Arena Mexico is Arena Mexico. But they still brought it and it's not like they held back whenever they went against each other. People talk about stiffness in Japan and the strong um, strong, um, division in Big Japan. Well, Rush holds his own like chopping and punching and throwing bombs with L.A. Park, who's probably a good 30 or 40 pounds heavier than him, I'd say. Those Those are his main feuds. But after that, he has like really good undercard stuff, which is surprising for a guy like Rush, who's usually at the top of the card, having a really fun feud against Marco Corleone, the former Mark Jindrak. And it's the best stuff I've ever seen from Marco Corleone ever. He kicked him out of Los Ingobernables, and they had super heated matches, amazing brawls that looked like they would like bordering on actually punching each other. The mini feud with La Mascara he had before having him rejoin Los Ingobernables was fun while it lasted. Even when he's on and off again, um, interacting with his brothers and being dicks to them, I think is great stuff. And it's just it's just funny to me how Rush in any capacity just brings that same level of intensity to anyone he's working anyone he's working with and I don't think anybody really has that kind of compelling nature in the way they act more than Rush he's one of the best heels in wrestling he's the top Rudo in Mexico and I can't imagine CMLL without Rush because without him you know I don't know who your Rudo is that you rely on to get those kind of great views and great matches on a regular basis. Yeah, Rush is a guy who everything I've seen um, I thought was pretty fantastic, especially his character work just really jumps off the page. Um, he suffers from just my lucha bias and um, that he wrestles a style. Again, it's part of the lucha bias as well, but he even wrestles a specific lucha style that's not my cup of tea, so it just kind yeah. of – I don't go out of my way to watch it. But when I, what I've seen of Rush, I really liked. So um, he's a guy that if I had more hours in the day and was just obsessed with watching everything, I probably would end up you know, having him somewhere on my list too. All right. So who's your number nine? My number nine is Kushida. Um, and I had I Kushida know. at 21. You did? Okay. Kushida was a guy that was in my top three at points throughout the year. Um, yeah, he was in my top five at one point. Yeah. The best, second best worker in all of the, the uh, best of the Super Juniors this year. Uh, most big shows in New Japan, his uh, junior heavyweight title defense was the match of the show. Um, like, on multiple occasions, especially with Will Ospreay, but sometimes even with Bushi. Um, with Liger. With Liger, of course, that match, and his feud with Liger in general throughout the years, um, especially in 2016, it really felt like it heated up to a, a, a point of just being amazing with the, the kind of master student or the guy taking over his spot kind of dynamic to it has really you know turned it up. But yeah, just phenomenal worker. I think has a has the makings of an all-time 
great feud with Kyle O'Reilly if this continues with them kind of going, snapping back and forth at each other. Um, they mesh so well together. But then also a guy who, when you talk about depth, I mean, Jesus, when he's just in these spot fest trios matches in ROH, a lot of times he's the, the glue holding the matches together um, with his selling and with his, you know, hot tags and his crazy dives and all that. But then, yeah, he can work on the mat with the best of anyone that, the uh, the J Cup this year the the match with Ken O all in, all in the ring um, the Ishimori it, match the Ishimori match as well but I mean I, I mentioned the Ken O match because Ken O is just such a um, like a strike based guy and Kushida was in the ring so as a as a kind of a, a counterpoint to the high flying trios matches he also is just one of, obviously one of the best mat technicians going um, the drama that he brings to his matches as a junior which is I mean that's something that gets overlooked a lot because in America we don't think of it that way um, and in Japan the lines are even getting blurred but I think he's part of the big wave of juniors that are helping blur those lines is that the crowd gets up and gets really hot for his matches and not just in a ooh fireworks way but in a drama way they get into the emotion of the matches that he builds with his selling, his facials, perfectly placed, you know, big big cutoff punch and all this stuff. Just such a phenomenal worker. And again, it just goes to show his commitment to wrestling is what makes him so good. And coming in in the wire, depending on if we're doing Meltzer Awards or not, there was um, the big elimination tag with Chaos um, where he had some really nice interactions with uh, with Okada during the Road to Tokyo Dome matches that really got me excited. And then every time they're in the ring together, him and Okada just have a natural charisma, natural kind of chemistry together that makes me super excited that one day they'll just have a big singles match that really blows it away because I think there's something there between those two. And that's really impressive, again, from a from a junior. He may be treated like the junior ace, but he feels like he could he could be on that level with the, the heavyweight champion in Japan. That's a big deal. So, um, yeah, he's just a guy who kind of transcends his, di- his division, transcends different wrestling styles. And like I said, at times... He was in my top three. Uh, what ended up dragging him down is just that New Japan model where for big chunks out of the year, he's just missing in multi-man tags and not having big singles matches um, to really add to his resume. Yeah, and um, when we were talking earlier about the grapple guys, and you mentioned Gulak and Thatcher, Saber, Busick, Haskins, Gallagher, it's funny because you could add Kushida into the mix of being a technical guy, but... We mentioned it with Mark Haskins when we did part two is that people don't really view Kushida as a technical wrestler. People don't really view him as a map-based guy, but that's what he is. He's a guy that stays on your arm. He'll target it viciously throughout the entire course of the match, and the arm will more than likely always play into the finish. He's a guy that's super committed to what he does, and what's great about Kushida is that versatility where he can do a match where he's just killing someone's arm like he did with Willow's Brand Invasion Attack, but you can put him in these trios matches like he was doing at Ring of Honor like he does in New Japan frequently where he can just go in there do some dives get his shine and you know he can do that stuff too so he can still do the high flying junior stuff but he's super well rounded and I think he's a phenomenal guy I had him at 21 and the same reason you gave the New Japan model kind of kept him down I thought the title um, change when he got the belt back from Bushi was fantastic. It was the most we've seen Kushida act like a heel all year. He was getting booed out of the building. He did that baseball punch and the crowd just completely gave it to him. He was vicious. And hopefully we get more of that. But yeah, Kushida's fantastic. Um, my number nine 
you had him earlier. Not exactly sure where, but my number nine is Shuji Ishikawa. I had him at 17. So, this man was essentially the MVP of Japanese indies to me this um, this year. From DDT to Big Japan, I thought this guy was absolutely fantastic. And he was given big spots, and I thought he always delivered. You could make a case that he was the best big match wrestler of the year. From the Strong Climb Finals against Kamatani to the Strong World Championship against Okabayashi to the King of DDT Finals against Endo to the Peter Pan main event against Takashita. He always goes in there and completely annihilates the person that he's in the ring with. And he's done this as a singles guy as a tag guy in trios. I mentioned it with Rush, and it's the same thing here, is that he brings that intensity, that stiffness, every single person he faces. It never changes. Maybe that's why he's not not higher on my list, because he is doing the same exact thing in every single match. But it works, and he doesn't ever compromise who he is to fit some other style. He's stiff, he hits you in the mouth, he murders these young prodigies, these young prospects and teaches them that he's the big dog in the yard and that he's always going to come out on top. He's a master at these murder death kill finishes. We mentioned it with Kamatani when he killed him on the Strong Climb Finals, but he did it to Endo too. He did it to Shigehiro Iri. He, he did it to Takashita at Peter Pan. All these young prospects, he's flat out murdered them and he's just the best at it. The main thing that I think really showed me how great Shuji is. And he's had great matches with him before. But the title match that he had with Dino. Dashiko Dino. For the KOD Openweight Championship. Now. People primarily see Dino. As a comedy figure. Which would be which would be correct. Seldomly he. I guess. Tightens up his gimmick a little bit. To be more credible as a title challenger. And he did it in 2016. When he faced. Shuji. And Dino's still doing, you know, his dick-based offense. It looks goofy. It's, you know, sexual and all this stuff. But it's you being used in a way where it looks like it could beat Shuji at any given moment. It even I think he even busted open Shuji's mouth at one point. But Shuji doesn't start doing comedy. Shuji doesn't start looking like he's a joke or a humorous, humorous, humorous figure. Shuji maintains that level of seriousness and anger and stiffness stiffness that he's had in every single one of his other matches. And he kills Dino at the end. But it's a perfect example of two guys with drastically different styles coming together. And neither one of them sacrificing what makes them great. Another match is Shuji versus uh, um, Kazuha, Kazusada Higuchi. And that was a match that I think put Higuchi on the map for a lot of people that weren't paying attention to him before as being, man, this guy is one of the top prospects in all of Japan. And that was Shuji taking this kid to the woodshed, letting letting um, Higuchi get some shine on him. But Shuji, in all in all, gets the victory. And I think he's just delivered in every single capacity this year. Twin Towers had a great year. Maybe not as great as their 2015 they didn't have any of those classic matches like they had last year with Strong BJ, but still a very solid tag team um, doing good stuff against Akibono and Hama 
or any other tag team that threw them up against. So Shuji Ishikawa was just a fantastic all-around year, I thought. Yeah, and I think <laughs> the weakest part is the Twin Towers case. I mean, they just they haven't had much, but he's just been so busy on a tear being singles champion in, in DDT and uh, uh, BJW this year that they haven't had a lot of great tag matches. But, yeah, and you brought up the Higuchi match, and I even wanted to talk about that because I think when Higuchi won that title shot, um, Shuji wasn't even really in the picture as a guy that would be who he was facing. Yeah. And I remember thinking, this is going to be interesting. At to, the, at the what's time, Higuchi going to do? Yeah, at the time, I forgot who was him. He wasn't it Takashita. Yeah. yeah, and so it felt kind of like to me at the time I was thinking Higuchi could win the title because right. I don't see him really losing to Takashita. And then when Shuji comes in, and then that match, I was like, oh, that was perfect. Yes, yeah, like oh, you know, at first like you said, you know, Takashita versus Higuchi, that's kind of a fifty-fifty. But right. then when Shuji wins the title, it's like oh, I'm not too sure about that one. Yeah, now it's like, oh, Higuchi's going to get his ass kicked. Right. And, like, that, it was so much fun. That match was amazing. And so, yeah, it's just, and I think it's really, I don't know, we were talking about Damnation, um, especially with Saki and um, Endo. And uh, I really feel like Shuji makes that stable, honestly, um, as the just kind of the big bad muscle and having the champion. He's not the leader, but he legitimizes the stable where it feels like a major threat to all of DDT, which I think is just fantastic. And then can play almost a completely different role as the as the champion in, in Big Japan, um, but still the dominant figure as the champion. So I just just did such a great job. And, and you hit the nail on the head. He really is the kind of the MVP of indie wrestling in Japan this year is just phenomenal big matches every time. You mentioned the damnation stuff, and I didn't even bring it up because... You know, I think Shuji is not like he like. It's weird to think that he's the champion. He's like he holds the top prize in DDT, but he's not the leader of the stable. And a lot of the times in these damnation segments or promos, Sasaki is almost like berating Shuji Ishikawa. He's like denying his affection. Shuji just wants to hug Sasaki. He's like kind of playing a lovable monster, and Sasaki's like kind of shooing him away. So when I mentioned that he's you know, still a big bad dude. Whenever you see him against a young dude, you know he's gonna kill them. But in DDT, after he does that, it seems like he goes back to like almost like being a kid that just wants some attention. Yeah, no, that is true. Yeah, so it's just a weird character dichotomy for someone that's so intimidating and has knocked people out to almost like turning into a child afterwards. So yes, yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah, that's it. Like the. The difference in, in the depth of character that he's playing in two different companies is really interesting for someone to be able to pull that off. Yeah. So that's on to number eight. So who's your number eight? My number eight, and this is this is kind of a, I guess you could almost say controversial one, just so high, is uh, Liverpool's number one, soon to be the world's number one, Zach Gibson. And I um, had Zach at 24. The reason why I could say it's controversial is having him so high for a guy who legitimately a lot of his stuff isn't on tape this well, year. I think like the controversial part is the people that you had him above. So, yeah. you, so you had him above Marty. You had him above um, Mark Haskins. You had him above Will Ospreay, who didn't even make your list. So I guess like that's the thing there. Well, even above a Jenny, who you who we even agreed with on part one was the best heel in Europe. 
So I guess that would be like the controversial part there. No, yeah, and it, and it really is. But I think that some of the difference there is that he gets amazing heat just like Jenny does in a different way. Jenny feels scary, and that's why I put her above in that heel regard. But, I mean, if you want to talk about just straight up getting heat heel, um, I feel like you could almost put him above Jenny. People are afraid of Jenny, but people hate Zach Gibson. Right. And that's kind of the difference there. Um, then, meanwhile, the work that he does, I mean, it's just – it's flawless. And that's – I mean, that's really the, the key to getting him here. Everything he does is so smart. Um, probably the best guy at working big and working small. He works to his opponent's size. It's like I, – I mentioned it before. But he can go from hiding behind David uh, Dave Mastiff as his muscle to replacing Dave Mastiff in a tag match. And in both cases, he he seems correct. He can be the big guy. He can be the little guy. He can work 50-50 with Mark Haskins. And he can be the giant hulking over Jack Gallagher. Um, he uses his size when he needs to. He always uses his brain. The most interesting, intricate arm work, um, especially as a heel, does such a phenomenal job of always making sure to leave the shine for the baby face. If he's working a technical baby face, he'll use a more brooding style arm work with more kind of chops and uppercuts to the arm and big kind of straight arm barred throws. And then if he's working against maybe a brawling style baby face, he'll use a more technical style with some cheating and, you know, using the ropes for leverage here and there to get arm like kind of ringers and attacks that way. And it's just a hundred percent, except for one match this year, a hundred percent of the time he is a heel that gets no fucking like, Nothing about him redeems himself in the matches. He's a piece of shit. He's a fucking asshole. He had one match this year, and that's why it's almost hard for me to think that it was not intentional, that slightly started to turn himself babyface against Mark Haskins, um, where the crowd was almost getting behind him. But everything else this year, he's always 100% heel, and that's really tough with someone who's such a good worker like he is. Um, then he can play with the crowd. He can be in big, jokey, um, eight, you know, four-man Atomico-style tag matches, and he can be funny without making himself a joke or you know he's not playing like he's joking with you and he's fun and funny he's allowing himself to be the butt of the joke and then making references like having the car stereo as a weapon um just to even kind of push it past the line and makes an ass out of himself getting tied up like a ball and i just think yeah i just think all in all he's just probably the Jenny, I could say, is the most feared heel in all of England or whatever. But I would say from work and from heat, uh, Zach Gibson's the best heel. I mean, Zach Gibson might be the best heel in all of wrestling, honestly, um, when it comes down to really being a heel 100% of the time. Yeah, one, like a couple things is that, man, I thought he was the MVP of that Thunder Bastard match from earlier this year. Oh, yeah, he he kept that match together the whole way through. Yeah, he was excellent in the Thunder Bastard match, which is admirable because, again, that's a match with 20 people in it. And he's the one that's holding it together. He made it to the final three. And what's interesting is that that final three was Zach, Marty Skrull, and Willow Spray. And Zach Gibson felt like he completely fit in in a match with two guys that are pretty much worldwide stars at this point. And he just has that kind of like a charisma to him. He has that kind of aura where you place him next to Marty and Will, Will and he feels like a big deal. And you mentioned his comedy stuff when he's in the origin. 
you know, which the origin is, is essentially a heel stable. Well, it's not heel, more of a troll stable, I meant. But mm. the, like the thing with the origin is that Cruz, Massif, and Laguerre are, are all clowns. So them doing comedy makes sense. And Zach Gibson kind of plays a straight man there. And when Zach Gibson does it, it comes across as a guy who gets, you know, taken advantage of because he takes himself too seriously. When Jack Gallagher ties him up in a ball, it feels like that happened because Zach Gibson took himself too seriously, rushed in, and then Jack Gallagher made him look stupid. It's not like a guy that is doing, you know, chuckle spots and putting his finger in someone's ear. It's a guy that is still trying to be Zach Gibson, but being Zach Gibson is what got caught him caught what got him caught in that predicament. And I think that's a great thing about him. Both of those Mark Haskins matches I thought were fantastic stuff. One match he didn't mention, I think it was the opening round match to the Strong Style 16, but his match versus Kenny Williams. And Kenny Williams is a guy who works ICW, so I haven't seen much of him. But that match against Gibson was just so good. Made Kenny look like a million bucks. Kenny looked like the best baby face in wrestling, and that's mainly because Zach Gibson was just pounding the ever-living hell out of him, going to work on that arm, and it made me want to see more Kenny Williams. And it's a shame that Zach isn't wrestling in more places that allow that allows on more of his stuff to make tape. But honestly, based on the progress work alone, it's been so strong that I have zero issue with you having him so high. And I could have seen myself having him higher because what he's done has been that good. There hasn't been a less than good or great Zach Gibson match that's happened in progress this year. Yeah, and a lot of it is his performances, honestly, and and kind of taking apart the fact that maybe he isn't in the biggest high profile or even the best matches of the year, but that he is always just an amazing worker in yeah. every moment of every match. Yeah. So that's your eight. And my number eight, I'm surprised because you haven't said this guy yet, but my number eight is Kento Miyahara. Oh, I will be oh, 100% oh, don't, honest. Tell, don't tell me you don't have him. I don't. Oh, <laughs> And the reason why I don't have Miyahara is that I completely fell off on Japan for the past couple months, especially All Japan. I mean, I haven't watched a stitch of, like, I don't think I've watched any of his title reign. And that's why. Like, and I know that he's been great, and I'll get caught up on it, and I'll make my, like, revised 2016 list in three years, and he'll be on the list. But unfortunately, because I haven't watched, like, any All Japan in the past few months... I just completely miss Miyahara. Tim, that hurts. I know. I know. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, Kento is... God, I mean, I don't want, I don't know how to phrase it without making it seem like hyperbole because I truly believe this, but Kento Miyahara to a single promotion is probably the most important wrestler of 2016. When we look at where All Japan was at the beginning of the year, we're talking January 2016, People legitimately thought that this company would be going out of business. You know, Akebono at one point had the championship. He got hurt. They gave Suwama the championship. He gets hurt. And it's just a revolving door of people getting hurt and just bad luck for all Japan. And it looks really dire. When I say that this company was on the brink of death, I 100% mean that. Don't take that for granted. So, Kento Miyahara, the young guy that they've been, you know, building up, polishing up, because he's eventually going to be the future of that company, 
He had had failed title shots before against Akebono and against other people. And now Kento Miyahara is in a position where he has to take the ball earlier than all Japan probably expected to have to give it to him. And he could have done a few things. It could have won a lot of ways. The crowd would have could have not taken to it. And they could have turned their backs on the young champion that hadn't proven himself. There could have been a terrible possibility of Kento following the same fate as past triple crown champions and him getting hurt. Or Kento could have took that ball and ran with it. And he did the third option. And without Kento Miyahara being the leading shining light of such a bleak company, I'm not sure All Japan would exist you know, in December 2016 when we're recording this show now. He's that important. Kento Miyahara being successful in what he and what they want him to be is the reason why this company is still around now. Now, on top of that, he's had great match output against Daisuke Sakimoto, against Kengo Mashimo, against Takawa Mori, against Junakiyama, against Suama, against Zeus, against a wide variety of guys. A great tag match resume, teaming with Jake Lee against Strong BJ and other tag teams that they put together. And I think, look, people criticize him for being formulaic. I understand it. But I think his importance goes beyond the match output, even though his match output is pretty damn great. His importance as a role in a company that was on the brink of dying cannot be understated. He headlined their biggest show of the year, All Japan's Return to Sumo Hall for their new Explosion show. He headlined that show against Suwama, someone who had just came back from injury from a, from a few months ago. And I've ripped Suwama to shreds this year. I thought he has been absolute garbage. I was dreading that match because I thought they would take the belt off of, um, off of Miyahara and go back to Suwama. And what they did was they went out there and had a fantastic match. Suwama didn't look as bad as he had for the, la- for the first few months. Kento Miyahara sold really well for him. And when Kento wins, it feels like even though 2016 was really them saying Kento was the ace, Kento is now our future. I mean, is our present now. He, he used to be the future. Now he is the future, I mean, present of what we're doing. And when he beat Suwama, it felt like the anointing of our official new king, of our new leader. Kento Miyahara is going to lead us to a new era of prosperity in all Japan. And it's a great moment. And look, I just think we really need to consider Kento Miyahara for the Flair Thez. I know people would scoff at that because uh, all Japan's numbers aren't that great. All Japan's numbers are similar to Noah's. Okay, there's a difference between decline, which is the case of Noah, and incline, which is the case of All Japan. All Japan was dying, and now their trajectory is much, much, much higher. You have to attribute that to Kento Miyahara. If that doesn't mean, if the, if you don't think that attributes to someone being a Flair Thez candidate, then I think there's something wrong with you. <laughs> yeah, and Miyahara. Yeah, I mean, what I've seen of him, which was primarily before 2016, um, definitely didn't have all the pieces that I'm hearing he has now, and wasn't at the level that he is now. So. 
I probably should have been paying attention, but I mean, the the amount of All Japan that I've watched this year in general is really minuscule, and it's mostly just piecemeal match here and there. And a lot of times, if I'm going to do that, I'm not going to watch main events. I don't know what it is about me, but I don't usually just watch like big title matches. I'll watch just random matches off of a card if I'm going to do that. And so I've I've seen like almost nothing. So I just need to I need to buckle down and watch all of his title matches at least this year just to kind of understand what his output has been like and I I feel bad that I didn't have time to do it for the list. And you something that like just went off in my mind when you said you hadn't seen any of the 2016 stuff is that you know the last bit of Kento Miyahara you saw was would be 2015, right? Yeah. And at that point, he was still the young punk trying to make a name for himself. He's still trying to make an impact in this company. He had had um, multiple failed title attempts. So he's still the young guy who's trying to make a name for himself. And he does a seamless transition to being an ace. Like, it's incredible how fast he does it from being this young, fiery upstart to being a complete ace who carries himself with the weightiness in air surrounding him. Like, whenever he walks out, you know he's the guy. You know he's a big deal. And I think as far as, like, being able to switch a character that fast, people aren't giving him enough credit for that. On top of just not giving him enough credit in general for his importance to an entire wrestling company surviving. Yeah, and I mean, as you said, switching from underneath, kind of getting his footing to ace role is a big deal. But, um... Actually, that's kind of a transition. My number seven is a guy who's done something similar in, in 2016. Um, probably not in such a drastic scale, but um, in some ways in more prevalent companies, and that's uh, Kyle O'Reilly. And I don't have uh, Kyle, so let's see so, about him. Okay, so Kyle is a guy who, again, part of the, the wave of juniors who have made themselves so believable in New Japan that they're able to have heavyweight title matches or at least in his in his instance uh open weight title match against a heavyweight um as he had phenomenal matches with shivada this year and he went on to win roh's title just recently at final battle at what felt like the culmination of years and years of growing as a character and as a wrestler um finally put it all together had some great matches throughout the year obviously a lot of times the multi-man juniors matches um would be held together by red dragon and kyle is a big part of what would make them feel like they had substance and there's more to it than just spots and craziness it's also has a narrative and a story there because of kyle um he had some great matches in the best of the super juniors um particularly the match with uh with Kushida, obviously, but also a great match with Taguchi. Although, if you listen to some people, Taguchi was the best wrestler in all of New Japan this year, so that's not saying much. Um, <laughs> but, you know, me and you are actually sane. Um, meanwhile, David Finley had a great match with him. Um, great match with Rocky Romero. I mean, just pretty much all of his matches, except for, I would say, his weakest matches were like Bushi and Matt Sydal. But everything else in the best of the Super Juniors, I think, was great. Um, Red Dragon have a fantastic match every time. I don't think I've ever seen a bad Red Dragon match, if I'm perfectly honest. And I I might come across as some but a, a bit of a fanboy for those guys just saying something like that, but I just think it's true. Um, Kyle can deliver probably the 
most satisfying main event style match to me um, almost every time when he's put in a big situation. Um, from the matches, the fight without honor with Adam Cole over WrestleMania weekend that I think was legitimately match of the year contender level um, to big main event title matches in PWG. Um, I don't know if he technically had a Roddy match this year, but the Sabre world title match this year was just another match of the year contender level match. Um, just lights out and seeing him getting to see him in PWG as the world champion. So regularly really kind of impressed. I think he had, I, and this is probably sounds insane, but I would be willing to say he had Marty scrolls best match this year in PWG. Um, not just in PWG, but he had Marty scrolls best match of the year is what I'm saying. That's not, that's not insane. That's not an insane take. Some people might think that's insane because the Osprey matches are such a big deal, but I really thought that that match with Scroll it showed that Scroll this was before Scroll had the matches with Hero and all this. It showed a lot more depth to Scroll's ability in ring than I think anything else Scroll had done up to that point um, yeah. in the villain character. Um, so yeah, it was just super impressive guy and making that transition up to being a top of the card guy. Um, not just in ROH, but also in New Japan, has been huge. And he's really putting together better promo work. Um, obviously, he's not the best promo in the world, but I think he's getting there. And he can definitely do that kind of pre-produced talking head promo in a chair really well. So, um, yeah, and then, I mean, got to give a nod to the the match where he's being the boys. Um, able to poke fun and have fun with him uh, with against like kind of against himself but then boom flip the switch and get serious and then right back to that blood feud with the young bucks and adam cole so a guy who's really multifaceted um doesn't take himself too seriously all the time but then when he needs to he does and uh he's got that billy robinson thing that i always talk about where kyle o'reilly wrestles in the universe of kyle o'reilly at all times so all the things that he does and everything in that regard makes sense for Kyle O'Reilly. And he never really kind of breaks the logic of his of his world because, hey, it's phony wrestling. You know, he doesn't take a sunset flip or he'll counter out of um, Irish whips and just stuff like that where you go like, oh, yeah, because Kyle O'Reilly isn't a fake wrestler. He's a real fighter. So, he you know, he doesn't do fake wrestling stuff. And that's a big part of what, why I like Kyle O'Reilly so much. I like Kyle a lot. I've always liked him. Main reason why he's not on my list is I just haven't watched Ring, Ring of Honor. Same reason for certain guys not making my list, like a Ray Rowe or Donovan Dijak not being higher or not having Leo Rush. You know, you know, it's like just not watching Ring of Honor on a weekly basis is going to hurt people that otherwise who would probably have had good years. Um, so mostly, I've just seen him in New Japan, and he's been consistently very good everywhere he's been. Where you know whether it's like starting off the year as a junior, like you said, and having a really great best of the super juniors run, uh, when he transitions to heavyweight and he has a fantastic match with Shibata that I'm surprised a lot of people didn't really like. I thought that was a amazingly worked match. Um, you mentioned the Marty Skrull match, the match he had with of night three on night three of Bolo with Mark Haskins was tremendous, and because Kyle has the built up equity of being a former world champion in PWG, he made Mark Haskins seem like such a killer, such look like such a big deal when Mark Haskins tapped him out. And that's a um, that's a situation of Kyle using his uh, aura, his presence, and that credibility that he has 
to put over someone like Mark Haskins that's pretty new to the PWG crowd. And I like Kyle a lot, just Ring of Honor, which is his home promotion. Is it really a blind spot? I just said I'm done with that company in 2016, so that's it there for him. Yeah, no, and I can't, uh, I can't blame you. ROH has its issues, but uh, what's your number seven, huh? Okay, so while you were talking, I was looking at my six and my seven and thinking about who I should say, and this is like really tough. <laughs> You're thinking about switching last minute, huh? Yeah, and I think I'm going to go through with it, but my number seven is Matt Riddle. Nice. And where'd you have Bro at? I had Bro at number twenty. Ah oh, man. I know. You're gonna get so much you're gonna get so much shit for that. Oh yeah, I know. <laughs> but what is there to say about Matt Riddle that hasn't already been said? I mean guy like ungodly charismatic and likable and the fact that he can be like the lead babyface and evolve at a moment's notice and then go to beyond and be a complete dickhead heel. You know, he doesn't get enough credit for how good he is at, ba- at playing babyface and heel. And that's probably because he's super likable. But, you know, when people say it's the best rookie here in professional wrestling history, that isn't a joke. It is. Yes, he was wrestling in 2015. But when, when was his debut in Evolve? Like in the fall? Um, of 2015? Yeah, like fall of 2015, right? Yeah, 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 it was... He's technically... He debuted with... In, with an Evolve. I mean, he's been wrestling for like 18 months anyways. Yeah. And he's been in Evolve, yeah, since like late 2015. So, when I first saw Matt Riddle, I don't think I wanted to like him. Like, I saw this ex-UFC fighter, even though I'm a UFC fan, I, I was... I've seen Matt Riddle a few times, but... I didn't feel like I wanted to like him. We were like, ah, oh, MMA dude doing wrestling. And then when I first saw him, he wasn't too impressive. I was like, ah, oh, man, this is Matt Riddle? And then, as he keeps going, and then there's the first hot sauce match that happens in 2015. That was really good. So, that got him some positive buzz. But, that January 2016 match with Tracy Williams made everyone take notice of, oh my god, this guy is really good. And I think it's because, well, one, he takes an ungodly pile driver bump that I'm surprised he hasn't taken more pile drivers this year, but that is probably the best bump I've seen him take ever. That is such an incredible bump that he took. But he was so great, you know, being a complete baby face. And he's so likable, so fiery. And he can do things that I'm not sure anyone else can do because he is so athletic. And then what's great about Matt Riddle is that he doesn't just rely on being an MMA fighter to have credibility. He doesn't even really employ MMA into his matches that much, really. He's a guy that used to do MMA, but the clear thing is that he is a wrestler now. MMA, he still knows how to do. He can do it when he wants to, but he is a pro wrestler and he's going to do pro wrestling things. And that's what's great about Matt Riddle. And then he can just go and have great matches with every single person you can think of. You know, Trevor Lee, Cedric Alexander, Timothy Thatcher, you know, Roderick Strong, Chris Hero. You know, go to the Scenic City Invitational, have great matches with Corey Hollis and Jimmy Rave. And it's just a laundry list of things that this guy can do. And... 
at first I thought really thought that it was just okay. Matt Riddle had a few good matches, so maybe that's why people are putting him in the greatest rookie of all time conversation. But when you keep watching him and keep watching him, yeah, the great matches are what reels you in. But the guy really is a fantastic character. I don't think it's any more evident than what he was doing in his um, feud with Chris Hero. And at Evolve, I believe, 73, and the match they had before that, just fantastic character work of Chris Hero doing the bully formula, the formula that has become his staple in 2016, and Matt Riddle just playing a complete, just awesome baby face. He's adopted using bro as a war cry, which is something so silly, but because it's Matt Riddle, it just works. And so that's a great feather, feather in his cap. And then the, I guess the, the feather on, like um, cherry on top is when he goes to progress. And I remember seeing on Twitter, some of the European people were like, all right, we're going to see if this, you know, Riddle lad is, you know, as cracked up as he's, as he's said to be. And then I remember people saying, I didn't believe the hype on Matt, on Matt Riddle until 30 seconds ago when he just need Will Ospreay and he's just soaking in the cheers from the progress crowd and they have one of the best sub 10 minute matches I can ever remember seeing and even in the main event on that show Matt Riddle had become so over had become a god in Camden that he overshadowed the entire main event honestly which is insane to say for someone that had just made their debut on that same show and Matt Riddle special he just has a star glimmer in his eye that makes everyone see how great he is as soon as you see him in a ring. As soon as you talk to him, he just has that it factor in. When people say greatest rookie of all time, I believe that now because 2016 proved Matt Riddle can do you know, so much for a guy that's so you know young into his career. Okay. I don't disagree with really anything you said. Matt Riddle is the greatest rookie, I think, probably ever. There's no question he's the rookie of the year for 2016. Um, he might be the best rookie in the history of wrestling. His match output has been phenomenal. He's had nothing but really great matches. As we talk, I have seen every Matt Riddle ex- match, except for the two matches in AIW for Double Dare, and a match in IPW UK that just happened against Zack Sabre Jr. I've literally seen every other Matt Riddle match. Um, my problem is with Matt Riddle and what put him at 20 for the year, for his rookie year, the 20 greatest wrestler, is that we were, it, I think it was me and you talking about it, and I've never seen Matt Riddle have a match where anything he did wasn't 100% about Matt Riddle. Right, And I don't think he has the depth to put anybody else over, to have a match that is not just a Matt Riddle showcase match. Um, and that's not his fault. And he shouldn't be expected to do anything else. He's a year in, and he needs to be establishing himself. I think, I and, think that, and I think that's what's going on, is that he's taken to wrestling so quickly, and people have taken notice that when they book Matt Riddle, they are going to book him as a star, you know, even in the Phoenix City Invitational, where it is more of a homegrown event, when they eliminate Matt Riddle from the tournament, it's in a screwy way. Right. Matt Riddle, it's all, he's been very protected. He's really, I mean, he's just establishing himself. 
And to me, the problem is that in 2016, he didn't show the depth. He didn't have, you know, I mean, his. I'm not saying all of his matches are the same, but he has very similar style to each match. And the story of every match is pretty much the same. Um, he's a phenomenal seller, but I think he starts selling a lot of times too soon. I think you could say the closest thing he's done to make anybody or have a match where he put somebody else over, truthfully, was the match with John Silver at American Rana, um, where I think he made John Silver, who was already on a path to being a big deal in Beyond for the year, he just kind of helped boost that more. And the brief interaction with Jeff Cobb and PWG. Well, I have a counter on that. You don't think um, Hot Sauce, the match of Hot Sauce and Mercury Rising, where Hot Sauce was the first person to beat Matt Riddle and Evolve? You don't, well, beat him clean. You don't think that one was putting someone over? I mean, I don't, at that moment, they were, to me, seen as such big time rivals, as I said. And I even mentioned that when I talked about Hot Sauce, that. That that him finally getting the win over Riddle at that point was a big deal in the story. But I think it really, it just kind of put over the fact that they're, they're like at equal level. Or okay. Hot Sauce is, is like building up. But I mean, I mean, I could see that. And that could be a definite argument for like a, a good job. But that was also involved with the fact that he, he had to beat him twice. You know what I mean? To tell that story. And he couldn't just go and have – I don't think he could do something like that without also so much booking being built around it. Um, on top of that, I thought that Williams is amazing. I mean, Williams is my – where is he? Number 13 worker of the year. I mean, yeah. like I think he's so good that Williams put himself over in that match with his work. I mean, that's also part of it because I think Williams got a lot more out of the Chris Hero match earlier in the year than he did from the match with Riddle, honestly, for being taken seriously as a big-time threat. So – I mean, I, I can see that point, but I do think that, you know, the interaction with Jeff Cobb that showed just them interacting did a lot to help put over Jeff Cobb. But again, that was just about their interaction. It's like, it's not anything that Riddle did. And it's, it's even similar to the match with, with Williams. It's not anything that Riddle really did in that match that put over Williams, but it was just the, them interacting with each other that did it. Um, so again, I think a lot of people are going to be pissed off and probably think that I should have him a lot higher and I'm crazy. For a rookie year, this he did really fucking good. But I just, it was really important to me. And when we get to the finals, we get to the top, it's kind of going to become self-evident why, as I was thinking about depth and being able to do so much, um, then I had to look back and go like, well, fuck, I don't think I can have Riddle really that high because he's done, he's had amazing matches, but he's done so little when it comes to different things. Right. So, yeah, I understand that case at all. I'm completely in... You know, it was you know it was me joking when I'm you know getting on you for having Riddle at twenty, but I mean, you said it yourself. You know, for a guy that had his first full year in a major company, you know, come to a close in twenty sixteen, having him as your number twenty wrestler of the year, and we you know it's become a meme at this point. But twenty sixteen is such a insane fucking year. That the fact that Matt Riddle made your top 20 and it's only 18 months into his career, yeah, that should be celebrated. Not looked down upon right. because, oh, you, Matt, you had Matt Riddle too low. <laughs> yeah, I mean, whatever. I know it's going to come. I don't care either way. But, I mean, I do care. I definitely care. You guys are going to get mad and you're going to say shit to me and it's going to hurt my feelings. But I think I've made my case. All right, so who's your number six? 
<laughs> this is so perfect that I now have to say this at number six after that. My number six is Ricochet. <laughs> oh, man, that's going to earn you some fans. Mm-hmm. So my, I have Ricochet at 11, so you can go ahead since you had him higher. Ricochet is probably easily the number six most well-rounded wrestler. No, um, I mean, God, there's guys that are above him on this list that aren't as well-rounded as him. I would say Ricochet is probably the number three most well-rounded wrestler of the year, and that's even, like, kind of um, being conservative. I think he might be the best. Um, his ability to fly, his ability to work the mat, um, his ability to work in tags, spot fest, tell good stories, put guys over. Um, he did a great job. You know, Desmond Xavier is, I think, the biggest match that stands out as putting people over. But he also did um, a lot of really good work in Lucha Underground, putting guys over. I mean, he is the ace of Lucha Underground, honestly. His feud with Matanza has been amazing as he's working a more kind of violent, vicious style. Um, his cockiness... He, makes such a big fucking deal like he stands out is god he said great matches i mean he had ach's best match of this year and he also had like one of michael elgin's best matches of the year you know he, he had an amazing match with liger that could almost be in that argument as well as one of liger's matches of the year if it wasn't for the fact that liger is just so goddamn good you know so it's just like how does this guy really just wrestle everyone um the matches with will osprey the matches with zach saber jr um the, there was a trios and evolve with Tony Nese and Riddle, and then he turns around and has a singles with Riddle that's fantastic. The match just recently with John Gresham that's easily one of the best matches of the year. I mean, he's shown it all. Again, he was the best worker and the best the best of the Super Juniors. I don't think anyone came close to him um, because he had the match with Osprey, and then he could turn around and have. I mean, completely different match with Liger that's just as good in a totally different way. Um, so it's just like the guy stands out. He's really put it all together this year um, as being more than just a flippy guy. I mean, great matches with Sammy Callahan, great matches tagging with um, Matt Seidel. I mean, just going all over the world. God, his match with his girlfriend with Tessa Blanchard was done just so well. I mean... He's got a slickness. I say he comes across like a video game, but um, a lot of times you think like, oh, that's just ridiculous. But there's something about Ricochet that when he pulls off this crazy shit, you almost go like, that looks so fake because he's so good. And it's not like that looks so fake because wrestling's fake. It almost turns into that like he's just a super athlete. That's why I believe that he was able to do that, not because like wrestling is a fake. And that's kind of an impressive thing to be able to pull off because I think a lot of guys and Will Ospreay is a guy who does that where it's like you watch him try to do shit that Ricochet can do and you go like well that was fake but when Ricochet does it you just go well what the fuck how did he do that you know and that's why I think Ricochet really stands out to me you know in 2014 once he had that match with Kushida and the best of Super Juniors final where he's selling the hell out of his arm you would have thought at that point that would have been like okay Ricochet is more than a flippy guy. Ricochet has, you know, a lot more going for him. You would think that two years ago he would have figured this out, but for some reason there's still this narrative about Ricochet that he's, you know, shallow as a worker, which is kind of insane to me because if you're watching the dude, he's done so much as a character. I mean, God, who do you think, you know, plays a cockier? Who plays a cocky? Who, who do you think plays a cocky prick better than Ricochet? I mean, that's a short list. The guy is. 
great when he gets to control somebody. And the thing about him is that a lot of flyers, you can't really say are great at control periods. They need to be the one selling so they can do the comeback and get in all their, you know, amazing looking offense. But Ricochet can tone down his style, still be athletic and smooth, but he does it in a way that's condescending when he's controlling a match. That Desmond Xavier stuff, when he's like, you know, talking to Desmond Xavier, who's being polished up as being the next Ricochet or being the next guy to break out as the next big flyer, and Ricochet's telling him, no, you're not on my level yet. And But he's doing it and still being Ricochet, not sacrificing too much of his offense or what makes him cool, but toning it down enough where he's still a heel. And he has a great balance at that. You mentioned his tag team work. I mean, God, I mean, we talked about this before, but even when the guy's in New Japan, and he's a complete undercard worker, he's a junior in six-man tags and all that stuff, but when Ricochet is in a six-man tag match and he gets his shine and he does the backflip into the head into the head scissors, the shooting star press to the floor, the springboard clothesline, I mean, he's a junior, but God, when I'm watching Ricochet, doesn't it feel like he should be a heavyweight in that company? Like, it feels like if you wanted to push Ricochet, you know, give him a Kenny Omega push and, you know, give him an Okada match or give him an IT title shot, the dude, like, feels like he would fit in right there. And I don't think anyone that's a junior right now has that, you know, maybe Kushida, but has that same quality where you could pluck them from that division right now and you would buy them watching that match. And he's done it everywhere. We In New Japan, he's done it in AW when he showed up. In PWG, he's been incredible. Teaming with Matt Seidel, had a great match against him. Death by Elbow, had a great bola against Jeff Cobb. Had a fantastic match where he played power guy against Jeff Cobb, which is, you know, we talk about the athleticism, but Ricochet is freakishly strong, too. And he's over here tossing around Jeff Cobb. He's done a great match with Johnny, um, Johnny Mundo in PWG, which, I mean, that was a fantastic rebound from the match Mundo had the previous night against um, Matt Seidel, which I, you know, you would say that was the worst match of Bola, right? Yeah, I think it was pretty easily the worst match of the Bola. And even then, I, I think I liked it more than most people. And I thought it was pretty much all Mundo that made that match bad. And then, I mean, Seidel is so damn good, but even he couldn't, you know, bring Mundo to have a good match. And then the next night, Ricochet, or, you know, I think two nights later, Ricochet is like, no, 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 you don't have bad matches with me. Yeah. And he just, he brings it out of him. And it's just like so impressive. And then we go to Lucha Underground, and the crazy thing is, like, I'm talking, and we haven't even talked about Lucha Underground, and the match with Rey Mysterio, we talked about when we talked about Rey last um, episode, but then he's having a really great feud with Mil Muertes that culminated in a fantastic Graver Consequences match, and we mentioned, you know, how Ricochet is really great at putting people over, which is something he doesn't get enough credit for, but when you mentioned that, I was surprised you didn't mention Will Ospreay matches. Or at least the one particular in New Japan, because I thought that made Will Ospreay look like a star. Like, as soon as that match was over, you felt like, okay, this guy is going to win Best of Super Juniors now. Because after that match, there's no bigger star than him. And even though Ricochet definitely got his spots in, Ricochet definitely made, like, you know, look good in that match. But it primed and prettied up Will Ospreay to the point where, you know, you can buy this 22-year-old prodigy going in there and winning the best of the Super Juniors on his first try. 
and he turned the entire wrestling world upside down. He even was getting highlights of his matches on ESPN and Forbes and all these places. And even though he's such a gifable wrestler, I think limiting him and putting him in such a box is just so, you know, condescending when the guy just does so much. I mean, Jonathan Gresham, that match from beyond is a toned down ricochet and it's focused on limb work and selling and just doing really smart work. And God, I just don't know what, like how, what people, how people don't see it in this guy yet. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, he's a phenomenal gif, gifable wrestler, but um, if you're only watching the ricochet gifts, you're getting like maybe 5% of the story because the guy is just so goddamn good at telling just even basic stories like the Grisham match. I mean, the story of the match is just that Ricochet is cocky and Grisham is focused. And Grisham's on the arm the whole way, but Ricochet is all over the place. And it's like, that doesn't take a lot to tell that story with Ricochet. But he sticks to it the whole way through if you're really paying attention to the narrative. And it's like, that little detail is what makes you buy into the match just so much more. Yeah, um, that was your six, right? Yeah. All right, so my six, you had him earlier, well, on part two, but my number six is Tetsuya Naito. Yes. I think I had him at number 19, right Uh, above Matt Riddle. (laughs) Um, Well, it's fitting because I have him right above Matt Riddle, too. All right, so, <laughs> God, I don't know how you tell the story of 2016 as far as wrestling goes without talking about Naito. I think the fact of what he's accomplished, obviously the character change and his trajectory all changed in 2015. All right, I'm not saying it all started here, but I'm saying the culmination of this, you know, it started the bubble. You know, people are starting to take notice, like, man, this new Naito gimmick is really cool. Like, he doesn't give a single fuck. He is the coolest guy on Earth right now. And I think that came to a boiling point this year when he was getting the, you know, IWGP title shots. And I mentioned this when I talked about Okada. But this, you know, feud with, you know, Okada and essentially against New Japan is... Naito was playing CM Punk and Okada's playing John Cena and Naito is just this rebel burn the establishment down yeah when I was young and you got and they, and they wanted to push me you guys didn't cheer for me but now that I'm grizzled and apathetic now you want to cheer for me and he wins the title He's a heel. He won it by cheating. The debut in Sonata helped Naito win the title. But it felt like a revolution started. Like Los Ingobernables had just took over New Japan. And it didn't last. Okada won the title back back in July. But for that moment in time, I remember watching that show live. And I'm just like, holy shit. Naito is actually the IWGP champion. Because I remember Naito. And when he lost at Wrestle Kingdom 8... And when he got forced out of the main event because his push was so bad. I remember that guy. And I always liked him. And I never thought he'd be back in the main event scene. But he forced his way back into it. And instead of acting like, you know, turning back babyface and, you know, New Japan. New Japan realized that they struck gold with this guy. And he's kind of replaced Nakamura where 
you know, he just carries everything with just sheer charisma. The difference between him and Nakamura, I think, is that Naito, I think, does go hard in those multi-man matches. He does try hard in those six-mans and eight-mans. Those Los Angeles Nobles versus Chaos six-man and eight-man tags, I think, are always great. And Naito's always playing a great character. He's, you know, people criticize Nakamura for being lazy. And I don't, and I think the thing with Naito's laziness is that laziness is almost part of his gimmick. You know, him being lazy and uninterested is part of what makes Naito so great. So when Okada is in the ring and the crowd is all amped up because they want to see Okada and Naito interactions, Naito's not going to give it to them because that's part of his act. But he still does turn it up when we get to the last few minutes of a multi-man match because the guy will always bust his ass. And it's similar to Okada where Okada doesn't have to work that hard, but he does. And the same thing applies there with Naito. So, a really great feud with Okada, I thought. Um, when we get to the G1, look, the G1 was top to bottom, had really great matches, but he had great stuff against Nakajima, had great stuff against Shibata, had a great match against Elgin. Obviously, the crown jewel is a match that he had with Kenny Omega on the second to last night of the tournament, which is a, which was a complete star maker for, for Omega. And Naito being so over in Sumo Hall, and then it just essentially rubbed off to Kenny Omega, and it came off as a once-in-a-lifetime match that you genuinely don't think you're ever going to get again because it's two heels colliding. Well, the leaders of two heel stables colliding. It felt like AJ Styles versus Minoru Suzuki, but on a much larger scale. And then after that, Naito doesn't win the G1. He challenges Michael Elgin for the IC title, and he wins that. And it's another fantastic match. And we discovered that Michael Elgin and Tessia Naito have a really great chemistry that I don't think anyone on paper would have expected. But they go out there and just have some killer matches. You know, in entire year, I think Naito's been a pivotal figure for how 2016 has been so crazy. Because this guy had a failed push. And then 2016, it all came full circle for him. Essentially taking over New Japan and shutting their titles and all of this stuff and he has great match output to back that up too so just an important wrestler in 2016 I think yeah and you summed almost everything up so perfectly there in some ways he was like Daniel Bryan of New Japan I mean he got so over that they couldn't deny him and you go into some of his title defenses like the match with Ishii that really stands oh out as- how did I not mention that Ishii match that was like at one point in my top 10 for matches of the year like, yeah, match and, is fantastic. And as you talked about his G one, I mean, you skipped over a match that really stood out to me from him was was the match with Evil. Yeah, and I think that that match told another layered story that almost in some ways played into the the block final against Omega as it's heel versus heel with him versus Evil, his kind of underling in the match, and just showing him kind of being the the bigger heel of the two, and how that kind of ended up biting him in the ass against Omega. Um, so I just thought, yeah, another a guy, as you said, who just stood out so much this year as being just an undeniable force of overness um, in New Japan. And a lot of times the, the kind of shining beacon over there in a company that can be so samey and so boring, he was a breath of fresh air the entire year. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing is that, yes, even though the Naito gimmick as we know it now started in 2015, in 2016 it reached a point where... It felt like the entire company 
was changing at the hands of Tetsuya Naito and his band of misfits. I mean, Christ, like, can you think of a weirder stable than LIJ? Like, when you really think about it? Tetsuya, <laughs> Tetsuya Naito, the guy who New Japan tried to push and it failed miserably. Sonata, who was at first an All Japan trainee, went to, um, no, he was a Wrestle 1 All Japan guy, got sent to TNA, they didn't want him back. He goes to Big Japan, works on the Indies in 2016, and then randomly shows up at Invasion Attack as part of LIJ. Bushi, a guy who was out for so long with a neck issue and other injuries, you know, compounding. Bushi's here, and then, you know, former Young Lion, um, Watanabe, who returned in this Grim Reaper-esque gimmick. Like, it's such a weird stable on paper, but to see Naito, I think it just rubbed off on all of them where they all have this coolness to them. You know, Sonata's a bad boy. Bushi's kind of like, almost like a gremlin or goblin or something. He's just super mischievous. Evil is the dark, brooding character. And here's Naito to bring it all together as the guy that's just, you know, yeah, I don't really care. You know, it's such a like weird but so great stable. And Naito just holds it all together. Yeah, it's it's been phenomenal watching Naito this year. We'll return after these messages. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Voice of Ring of Honors, Kevin Kelly here. I just want to make sure you're all subscribed to all of our great feeds here at Place to Be Nation. Now, it's really easy to do. Just head to iTunes or your preferred podcatcher app today and search for and subscribe to the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed Place to Be Nation pop feed, pro wrestling only feed, and of course, the Kevin Kelly Show feed, which includes the full archives of my podcast. Subscribe, listen, and then rate us and leave feedback today. And of course, as always, enjoy all the great action of Ring of Honor Wrestling and everything presented to you on placetobenation.com. Nation's JT Rosero here, and I want to let you know that we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlaceTimination.com, and we offer them to you across two great feeds. On the PlaceTimination Wrestling feed, you can check out Scott Criscolo and me on the Mothership, the Place to Be podcast with our famous Vintage Vault pay-per-view reviews. PTBN also covers current-day wrestling with the smash hit clotheslines and headlines our steady veteran main event, and the beloved monthly pay-per-view reaction shows with immediate feedback on all pro wrestling super shows. We live wrestling's past with our monthly pay-per-view rewind series led by Ben Morse, the always contentious Dangerous Alliance podcast, and Survey Says, a fun look back at the good, bad, and ugly of WCW. On our very popular Place of Nation Pop podcast feed, we offer such great shows as the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, Rank and File, NBA Team, Lucha Undead, Geek and Sassy, and a veritable podcast heaven for comic fans with hard-traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversation, and Imaginary Stories. Subscribe to both of those feeds on iTunes and rate and leave feedback for us as well. All of these shows, plus others, available at PlaceTimation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus tournaments, and more. Be sure to support our site by using PlaceTimation.com backslash Amazon when doing your online shopping, and download our free Place to Be Vintage Vault Refresh eBooks via the links on the right-hand side of our site. We also want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar in West Rockwood Island and Fall River, Massachusetts, TheHistoryOfWrestling.com, and Scott Keats' Blog of Doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaceTimation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Thank
PWO PTBN feed has changed its name, now known simply as Pro Wrestling Only, so it should be easier to find and indeed to say. All of your favorite shows are still here, including Where the Big Boys Play, Letters from Kayfabe, Titans of Wrestling, Tag Teams Back Again, This Week in Wrestling, and many, many more, including our full archives of tremendous content. So make sure you subscribe to the Pro Wrestling Only feed today. Now back to the show. Uh, so I guess I'll go into my number five. Yeah. Um, I, kind of looking at my top five, I'm wondering if people are like able to piece it together at this point or not. Um, I figure you probably can, but I wonder if, what order you think I'm in right now. Um, my number five is Jonathan Gresham. Okay, I expected that one coming up. Okay. And I had Gresham um, at like probably like 30... Hold on. Yeah, 36. He's, I mean, it's hard to not just say it, but like, I think he might be the best technical wrestler in, in the world. Um, I'd agree. His mat game is so smooth. His focus on limb work, his depth of knowledge is something that is very impressive. Um, his ability to move around, his quickness, his ability to turn up the pace, and his focus and his determination and drive that he puts over in matches is something really impressive. We talked about Sammy Callahan with the kind of not even almost like Napoleon complex, but not exactly like that. It's, it's more like he thinks he's bigger than he is. Gresham is like the opposite. Gresham works a hundred percent more focused because he knows how big he is and he knows he has to work harder than anybody else because he's not gifted. And he overcomes the fact that he's always the smallest guy in the fight um, with intensity and with skill um meanwhile just today i watched the cage of death match against joe gacy where he's playing a cocky prick asshole grabbing the mic during the match and just brutalizing this guy who probably outweighs him by almost 200 pounds it's so it's so great and the whole way through you're just buying into these cocky prick asshole who's beating up this much bigger man and i mean grisham's story Almost his entire career, honestly, Grisham's story is kind of the how much of a benefit he is to the promotions that are willing to use him. <laughs> and it's just this weird, like, hodgepodge of smaller companies that just go, yeah, he's great. And they don't worry about, I think, all the other bullshit that has to do with Grisham. And it's kind of funny in some ways because his year has been bookmarked by amazing. ROH TV matches that just make you go, why the fuck aren't they using him full time? As he started out the year with a really great TV match with Cedric, which I don't know if you remember, but God, it was so good. And then he had the great tag team match with him and uh, Corey Hollis. Um, My God, I don't even remember who they were against, but I remember it was just phenomenal. And it's like from there, they just don't use him. And then he shows back up and he just recently had really great TV matches with Leo Rush, and I mean, God, he makes he makes Leo Rush look so much, so good. And I mean, the, the, he's had matches with Leo Rush over L- Rush's short career, and you just see the improvements. And a lot of times, you know, Grisham just brings so much, makes Leo Rush look so goddamn good. But 
in the best of the best. He was phenomenal the whole way through, telling a story and working his, you know, working his style. Matches like a match with Donovan Dijak, you think that's crazy, but like he's able to go pound for pound or hold for hold against Dijak, takes him apart, can beat up the giant. He can also wrestle John Silver, Tracy Williams. I mean, Chris and Hero. obviously Chris Hero. He can go up against everyone, and then obviously the big kind of the the elephant in the room especially when you're talking with me and you is the the skillogy the three matches with Zack Sabre Jr. um i mean what can you say about it there's i think some of the most epic storytelling in wrestling i think maybe ever what do you think yeah for i mean i think we t- we did this when we did the first psychology is dead but for how condensed that story is where it literally took place in the span of a month to feel so special I think it has to go you know it has to be in the conversation at least for me and you because I'm not sure who else has watched it right exactly and I mean you had to be paying attention to kind of be able to get through so much so fast from beyond putting together this this story and and I mean it was just amazing and the guy is just so goddamn good and should be getting attention I mean more people should be paying attention but yeah his Focus on limb work, his depth of knowledge, his skill, and as I said, just everything he can do in that ring. He just always stands out as just obviously one of the best wrestlers in the world. You know, I feel like I always have the reaction whenever I watch Jonathan Gresham. And I don't think I have this reaction with anyone else, but it's always like, how the fuck is this guy not signed? Like, every single time I watch him wrestle, it doesn't matter who it's against, it's that exact same reaction. Like, okay, this guy can do the flying. All right, cool. He can do the technical wrestling. All right, cool. He can do turn it up and do, you know, super indie style, lots of head drops and flashiness. All right, he can do that too. He can work heel. All right, he can work underdog babyface. He can do tag team. He can work sprints. He can work long-term feuds and tell stories and be a complete, you know, asshole heel in CZW a company known for the blood and gore but he weasels his way into being the CZW champion and even though he's so what you would call diminutive he's you know 5'2 and he's like 150 or 160 he's beating the ever living hell out of Joe Gacy who's like you know a good 230 and he's berating him and beating the hell out of him at the same time like he's the rock it's like incredible to me how Jonathan Gresham is maybe the most talented guy in wrestling, but he isn't signed anywhere to an exclusive contract. I it's hard for me to wrap my mind around that. No, I know. It's just it's it really is probably one of the worst <laughs> kind of turn of events in wrestling, modern wrestling. Like, you know, imagine if we look back at, you know, ten years from now and we do, you know, GWE twenty twenty six and Jonathan Gresham had never signed anywhere exclusively to a long-term contract, we would look at, like, wouldn't he be in the conversation for guys that he's the greatest of all time, but he would be higher if someone had ever, uh, had like, someone had gave him a chance to be the guy somewhere? Yeah, no, I mean, if he had gotten, exactly, if he ever got that shot to really show what he could do, he might be one of the greatest wrestlers ever. I mean, he already kind of is. 
Like that's you know, and that's like insane to say because like, oh man, I never heard of Jonathan Gresham. He came from WWA four, but the dude's a complete journeyman. You know, working in WXW early in his career, working in Zero One, and then obviously what he's doing now is like, ah, right, deceptively, Jonathan Gresham's been great for a really long time. Yeah, no, I mean, he was the original WWA four guy, and no one was talking about him. But I mean, he came out even way back before like the current crop of guys that are actually getting attention. Yeah. So look, I will say Jonathan Gresham is maybe the most talented guy in wrestling. I probably should have had him higher looking at my list, but you know, holy hell, man, I can't argue against that. If someone had him as their number one, it's like, you know, I can't argue against it because the guy's output is just as good. Well, it's just as um, deep as how talented he is. And that was number five. Yes. Five. All right. My number five is Yamato. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, God, if I'm perfectly honest, I've just never been a fan of Yamato. Like, I I just don't like Yamato that much. Like, I, I don't know. It's just a personal block that makes me not be able to appreciate him as much as I probably should. Um, Yamato is a really interesting guy because in Dragon Gate and the way Dragon Gate works... You know, you don't really have people play multiple characters in one calendar year. You know, usually, you know, Shingo Takagi, who I had on my list at 12, he played heel all year. The reason why he's on my list is because he was such a great heel. If Naruki Doi was going to make my list, it was because of it would be Naruki Doi being a great heel. Or if someone else made my list, like, say, um, Akira Tozawa, it'd be because Tozawa is such a great babyface. Yamato has both to boast this year, which is insane to say for Dragon Gate, which is something a company that works on one heel stable, and then every other stable revolves around being babyfaces or being tweeners. And Yamato started off the year despicable human being in the tag team with Naruki Doi, you know, which is probably the best tag, tag team in Dragon Gate history. Uh, they start off the year in the tag title defense against uh, Genki Horiguchi and Ryo Saito, which is one of the better tag matches of 2016. But it happened on a smaller show, so a lot of people haven't seen that match, but it's brilliant, honestly. After that, we start to see cracks in the Berserk armor. Um, Doi and Yamado lose the belts to T-Hawk and Big Arshimizu. Berserk starts to have more than infighting. I talked about with Shingo Takagi. Shingo's being an asshole, and Yamato is getting fed up and the entire feud is more centered around those two alpha males kind of going head to head and everyone else has to take a side and once we get to the dead or alive cage match it's a brilliant performance by Yamato where gradually as the match goes on the people that sided with him start to turn on him Naoki Tanizaki turned on him first spitting into his eyes and allowing Tanizaki to escape the cage first then Doi, and this is one of the best moments of 2016 in my opinion, is Yamato's about to leave the cage. But um, everyone in, everyone else is in Berserk, Shingo, Cyber Kong, they're still down there beating up Doi. And Yamato has this look on his face, he's so conflicted, like, you know, he should leave, he should save himself. But he goes back and saves his tag team partner, and he pays for it, because Doi being Doi turns on Yamato. 
and Yamato was, you know, he's a master of facial expressions. He's the best guy in wrestling and just telling a story with his face. It's honestly ridiculous how good he is at that. And after that, we get Yamato as a baby face. Even though the Tribe Vanguard unit absolutely sucks, Yamato, Yamato's work is always good. He doesn't let the weight of that unit carry him down. We get to the match with Shingo at Kobe World, and it's a fantastic main event, one of my matches of the year. And they tell this epic, this epic story. It has its conclusion, and Yamato feels like a conquering hero that just ended the reign of tyranny of this dictator. Yamato is the champion of the people. He ended Shingo when you know the crowd hated him. And Yamato's our guy. He did this for us. But after that, Yamato had his first title defense against Akira Tozawa. And um, he kind of goes back to being the old Yamato somewhat. He's kind of cocky. He's dismissive. But he's also really vicious and surgical in how he picks apart Akira Tozawa's leg. And it's one of the best, more focused performances of the year because he... Puts an absolute beating on Akira Tozawa. And granted, Akira Tozawa is my favorite wrestler. So when Akira Tozawa is, you know, in a match and he's playing babyface, there's going to be a floor and a ceiling and they're not that far apart from each other for me. But I think it's a fantastically worked match. And it plays off the fact that for a lot of people, we thought that was Akira Tozawa's last match in Dragon Gate. It was maybe his final in Dream Gate title shot because we don't know how long he's going to be here. And obviously, he played, he wound up staying for like almost another two months. But at the time, that just played off so much emotion. And Yamato looked like a complete killer when he finally put Tozawa down for good. And I just think he's been responsible for some of the best moments in wrestling this year. While also doing it as a babyface and a heel. He just has that variety. Being a tag team guy. Being a singles guy. Working on the undercard. Um, with his babyface unit and Tribe Vanguard, working the undercard with his heel unit and Berserk, being a, being the Dreamgate champion, being the Twingate champion, he's just done it all in Dragon Gate this year, which again just doesn't happen that often. Um, I've definitely always heard the arguments that Yamato was the the most, I guess, well rounded or kind of able to play both sides, Dragon Gate worker. Um, at least currently and maybe of all time. Um, Other than Shima, you know, you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone that could, you know, seamlessly go between babyface and heel the way Yamato does. I mean, I know people were upset that Yamato turned babyface because he was so good as a heel. And when you have people that are really upset that you turned heel, I mean, turned babyface because you're so good at being a bad guy, I think that shows you, you know, how great his work is. Yeah, and I mean, I really, I did love the the Doi Mato tag team a lot, and uh, I thought that their their long Twin Gate reign was fantastic. But as I said, I I've always underrated Yamato, and I just I kind of just accept that. I kind of <laughs> I watch his matches, and I just never get as into him as I probably should. Um, and I don't know what it is. I feel bad, but I just never have liked the guy, and I think. I don't know. I think the first match I saw of him was years and years ago against, uh, Do- actually against Doi for the um, for the Dreamgate title, and uh, I just yeah, I just never have been able to get into him. I don't know why, but um, 
I know that he's a guy who definitely deserves to be this high on the list. I mean, if you're into Dragon Gate, he's been kind of the ace, and as you said, able to go back and forth this year as as a big fucking deal and deliver the big emotional matches. But um, I just I'm not invested in him emotionally. So when it comes to Dragon Gate, if you're not into a character, you're losing a lot of what makes them great. In that you're lo- you're missing so much of the emotion of the storytelling. Yeah, and that's a lot of the reason why I know some Dragon Gate fans, you know, kind of underrate Shingo Takagi is because they're so sick of him as a character that it kind of overshadows, like, you know, this guy is still going out there and putting in great work. You know, you can't deny that. So, yeah, I understand that. And, you know, it's obviously not coming from someone that dislikes Dragon Gate. So, look, I'm under- I 100% understand what you're saying about Yamato. That's the same way I feel about Doi sometimes. So, yeah, I totally get that. So, right, and I have the opposite thing. I've always loved Doi a lot. Like, I'm, I'm a guy who thinks that Doi should probably... Like, I would want to switch Doi for Yamato as the guy who's having the big Brave Gate run right now, honestly. Right. Um, so that's just that's just kind of... I guess we just swip, kind of swap that way and who we can get behind. But, uh, right, so you know, that's just me. You're number four. Okay, so my number, number four... Um, so we talked about Shuji Ichikawa and how he was the the ace of the Indies of Japan, right? And kind of or the MVP of the Indies in Japan. Now, imagine if Shuji was doing all that great work on the Indies and the smaller promotions in Japan, and then also somehow he was like the mid to lower card champion in New Japan, and he was also like a tag team champion and Noah and one of the most compelling characters in, I guess not even Noah, let's say like uh, dragon gate. So like he's the ace of the Indies while also being in the mid and one of the more entertaining parts of the big companies as well. And that's essentially what you have in my number four, but in the UK is my number four is Pete Dunn. Um, And I had Pete Dunn at 19 and number 19 Pete Dunn has had a surprisingly impressive 2016 when it comes to just the sheer number of matches. Um, if you're not paying attention to the smaller indies in the UK or in Europe overall, you don't realize how much this guy is wrestling and how much he's bringing to, as I said, the indies. He is the MVP of European indie wrestling. Um, he is the co-owner of Attack Wrestling and the most important character in the company, honestly. Um, he's the only real heel that's not a joke in the entire company. Um, in OTT, he goes from being the you know, the evil, kind of overthrowing the, the biggest baby face to become the champion. Then he becomes one of the most loved guys in the company just from being so damn good. Um he also has great matches in SWE, a fantastic match with Mark Haskins, Sammy Callahan, um, tag matches, as I talked about earlier, tagging with his brother. And then midway through the year, he starts tagging with Trent Seven, um, a guy who you know, is the part owner of Fight Club Pro, where Pete Dunne is also having phenomenal matches consistently um, at the top of the card, re- uh, winning the championship recently. Just such a big fucking deal. Can wrestle... As I said, on the RPW shows as their cruiserweight champion, really holding down the mid card and making everyone look phenomenal the whole way through. Clearly, I think 
if you're excluding all of Lucha, which would just mean really, I think the only person that you would really be able to even put make the argument for is probably Ultimo Guerrero. I think Pete Dunne's the best base in wrestling. Um, he makes every flippy fly guy look ten times better. He can make non-flippy fly guys do really cool flippy flying moves. Um, he takes the best everything. He delivers the crispest Liger bomb you'll ever see. Um, all of his moves. He does this great thing where he has ways to put guys into counters of his big moves. So instead of bastardizing his finisher constantly, he's always finding ways to make people counter his finishers so they don't have to kick out of his move, but you still get these awesome, cool near-fall spots where you think he's just going to put somebody away. Um, as I said, holding it down in the in the under, under mid-card of RPW, really a lot of times delivering the best match or the second-best match on the show in the cruiserweight title match then in progress i mean the guy just became a phenom in progress going from the undercard as i said tagging initially with his brother has some matches here and there starts tagging with trent seven and instantly becomes a big fucking deal and the biggest deal winning the championship in a believable manner where you just go okay this is the guy this is the ace of the entire company um and he is 100% to blame for why my voice has sounded like shit for days. Because when he showed up in PWG, I lost my fucking mind. And it's all because of just how goddamn good he is. Then he shows up in WXW randomly and he wins the shotgun title and has some great matches with the, with the Mac, or he has a great match with the Mac. Then he has fantastic match with Leo Rush, Tyler Bate. I mean, all over the place. He can wrestle so many different styles. He makes everybody look phenomenal. Um, you don't see Pete Dunne make any mistakes in his matches. He's crisp. Everything he does looks amazing. He can play a cocky, like, kind of monster, brooding heel, kicking ass, and then he can do chicken shit heel just seamlessly into, like, oh, no, I was, you know, false bravado. I was just messing around. I'm actually going to cheat. I'm going to pull all this other shit. Um the guy has just got it all, and he's got it all in spades. And 2015, I think Pete Dunne came into his own. 2016, Pete Dunne became a top-level main event worker and a guy that everyone should have on their list. And, I mean, I got him here at number four. And, again, um, I think that, that might be shocking to a lot of people. But, as I said, it's like this hybrid of somehow being able to be the ace of the entire indies of Europe while also being, like, the most solid worker and probably going to become the ace of the top companies in Europe here. So, um, he's a guy that if you're not paying attention to, you really should because you're doing yourself a disservice for not watching more Pete Dunne. Yeah, when you started saying, you know, the, like giving the comparisons to how Shuji is and how he's the ace of the NDT in Japan, I didn't really start to think about it. You know, I didn't really view Pete Dunne that way until you really broke it down and that's like, holy shit, this guy is a big deal everywhere. And, you know, we mentioned Fight Club Pro. OTT, SWE, RevPro, Progress, and those are, you know, distinctly different companies that have, you know, distinctly different feels, and, you know, even, you know, Attack, a company that he helps run and all that stuff, like, it's completely different companies that have completely different feels, and Pete Dunne fits into every single one of them in a different way, and the match output is sneaky great, you know, against Ricochet, against Willow Spray, against Trent Seven, against Sammy Callahan, against um, Luther Ward, against Dave Mastiff, against so many guys, against Chris Hero. You know, in Bo he showed up at Bola, and he had a fantastic match with Mark Andrews, which was, you know, great because both guys are fantastic workers, but, you know, that showed off Pete Dunne being such a tremendous base, the tag team work. 
and I think this is maybe like the tag team where Damian Dunn and Trent Seven, but I think what he's done in progress in one year is pretty goddamn impressive because he wasn't working progress regularly. He showed back up in progress, you know, kind of randomly tag teaming with his brother. They had a feud against Mustache Mountain, and then you know they flipped the switch. They turned Trent Seven on Tyler Bate. Pete Dunn turned on Damian, and they form British Strong Style, which instantly becomes a top act. They win, I think, one or two matches. And then after that, they're winning the tag team titles from the London Riots at Progress's biggest show of the year, Chapter Thirty Six. After that, they have a title defense. Again, they have title defenses again. They have title defenses, but what really happens is that gradually and gradually, Pete Dunne becomes a bigger deal. And then, on cha- and then at Chapter Thirty Nine, it just all comes together. And Progress realized, okay, we have no Mark Haskins. We had all these plans for him. We can't put the we can't put the title back on Marty Skrull. We can't put it back on Jimmy Havoc. We can't put it back on Willow Spray. So they look at everything else that's around them, and it's like, huh, Pete Dunne is the champ in Fight Club Pro in OTT. He's a big deal in the tech. He's a big deal in Ref Pro. Man, we should play up the fact that this guy is a champion everywhere he goes and make him our champion too. And they realize that Pete Dunne is a really big deal. They weren't just treating him as an undercard guy anymore. So when Pete Dunne wins that championship and he pins Jimmy Havoc... There was some chicanery, but he pins Jimmy Havoc, the most pivotal figure in progress wrestling history. You believe it because you, if you know Pete Dunne, the guy is a champion everywhere he goes. That's just factual, and progress capitalized on that perfectly. And I'm not sure if you've seen the match, but did you see his match versus um, Zach on Chapter 40? Uh, I need to watch it. I need to watch it, like, right now, honestly. Yeah, but, God, I love that match, and it's super intense, and Pete Dunne is such a great heel, he tries to match the technical wrestling with Zach, and but he realizes he's not good at it. And Jamesy, who works who writes for Wrestling with Words, you know, always compares Pete Dunne to Terry Rudge. And in that match, you really see the Terry Rudge comparison because Terry Rudge always had a way of you know showing his frustration and built up anger for not being able to best someone when it came to the chain wrestling. And he'll just snap and you know throw someone or punch someone, and that's what Pete Dunne does, you know. He tries to wrestle with Zach. He doesn't get it done. He can't do it. And then he just winds up punching him in the mouth. And I think it's fantastic stuff. He's a great heel, great base, great character. He's nasty. He's vicious. But he can also, you know, do some kind of comedy without sacrificing what makes him, you know, so dangerous as a character. You know, he's just so great. And I'm just surprised more people don't like the guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I feel like uh, this is the perfect time to say, Pete Dunn, number four wrestler of 2016, don't at me. <laughs> um, so, to follow that, I have a number four, AJ Styles. Ooh. Again. And you don't have only a Only a casualty to my non-WWE viewing. I mean, realistically, the guy deserves to be on the list. There's no question, but... Because I just don't watch WWE TV, and I've really even slipped out of watching the big shows. I mean, I haven't seen enough AJ this year to really comfortably put him on the list. Yeah, that's fair. Um, God, what do you say about AJ Styles? I mean, I've 
said this for so long, and I've said it because I grew up watching AJ Styles, really, which sounds weird to say because a lot of people wouldn't associate, ah, oh, man, AJ Styles hasn't been around that long. But I started watching TNA like 2004, 2005, so I really did grow up watching AJ Styles. Well, dude, I mean, I saw him on Nitro when I was a kid. I've grown up watching AJ Styles, too. Yeah, which is like, you wouldn't think the guy's been around that long. So, obviously, like in 2014, once he leaves TNA, he has a career renaissance working in New Japan, working in Ring of Honor, working indie dates here and there. And WWE comes calling in 2016 with an offer that is actually suitable for a man of his talents. And... It just starts. Well, he he does other stuff before that. There's the Zack Saber Junior match at High Stakes. There's the Shinsuke Nakamura match at Wrestle Kingdom 10, which is an incredible match that really fits what you would call a dream match because you know that like they had never interacted before until that feud and you know when that kick started off in November, they had never interacted, and so that really did fit the dream match title. They go out there and deliver. After that, WWE comes calling, and he debuts in the Royal Rumble. And immediately, I felt like you know everything that I had wanted for the last ten years finally happened. I loved TNA. I used to love TNA, but AJ Styles was someone that you know he was kind of sting in a way where everyone always wondered. You know, what would happen if Sting went to WWE? You know, initially when WCW ended. And I saw all sort of AJ. It's like, man, what would happen if AJ Styles went to WWE? And a dream came true and it actually happened. He debuts on the Royal Rumble. One of the most monstrous pops I've ever heard. And it proved to people that was like, oh man, would people even know who AJ Styles is? And his reaction completely blows the roof off the place. Instantly, he goes in and he has fantastic chemistry with Roman Reigns, which we'll be getting back to very shortly. AJ leaves a lasting impression in his first night in the company. He moves on to a feud where he's pretty much, you know, weaving in between feuding with two people. The main feud is with Chris Jericho, who he was tag teaming with initially. We had a friendly rivalry with him. You know, they had a couple of good matches. They had a really good one, good one on SmackDown, where they started turn into a tag team. They had a really fantastic TV match against the New Day, which is probably my TV match of the year. And then also on the side, he's feuding with The Miz, who I said when I talked about The Miz on part two, is that The Miz had a really big part in getting AJ Styles over. And AJ and The Miz have some really fantastic matches on Raw and SmackDown. After WrestleMania, when the Jericho feud concludes, AJ wins the number one contendership for the WWE title, and he goes a few with Roman Reigns. Roman Reigns was such a polarizing figure and someone who was actually on my last cuts for the top 50. They go out there and have matches that are almost otherworldly. Like these guys, you would never think in a million years their chemistry would be that good. But their timing and the way they react to each other, they bring this, you know, energy and atmosphere that you wouldn't think, you know, AJ had just debuted in the company in January, and in April and May, they were just going out there and having these tear down the house main events, where these crowds are pretty much entirely pro AJ Styles. He turns them that now obviously it's not too much of a big deal to turn a crowd against Roman Reigns, but AJ had just came into this company not that long ago, and he's doing that. 
shows you how great AJ Styles is at getting himself over, even if he's not, you know, specifically trying to steal the show like that and take shine away from everyone else. And so that feud is great. After that, they move on to having a feud with John Cena. And I've made the Sting comparison already, but that was the equivalent of Sting feuding with Undertaker. You know, the faces of these two companies. You know, AJ Styles, the biggest what-if guy in TNA, versus the face of WWE for the last 10 years, John Cena. When they first interact, it doesn't even feel real. And they go out there and have a really well-told... Well, first AJ turns heel. And people seem to forget that AJ Styles is a really good heel. And forget that he's a really good character guy. So when he turns heel and he's cutting these great promos, people like were, oh man, AJ Styles... How, how come I never knew that he was such a great promo? Well, he's been doing it in TNA for a long time. You just weren't paying attention because it's TNA, which is fair, but he's been doing it. And then he's having this great view with John Cena, which we're revolving around the idea that AJ Styles can wrestle circles around John Cena and that John Cena can't keep up. And it's really well told because it got people thinking that, man, John Cena must not be that good because he looks slow wrestling AJ Styles when... I think John Cena is just such a smart worker that he knew to tone it down. And they just have a great feud. Money in the Bank is more of a story-driven match, and then their match at SummerSlam is more kick-out heavy and all that, but I think it's still great in its own different way. And it gives AJ a definitive win over John Cena, who at that point, it was clear that he was going to be a part-time guy. After we lose John Cena and we go into the brand split, AJ Styles becomes the ace of SmackDown. We've used the word ace a lot when we're doing these shows, but a lot of these people have actually filled ace roles this year in 2016. AJ Styles became the leading face of a WWE weekly TV product in 2016. He is having great TV matches with guys like you know Kofi Kingston and Xavier Woods and Dolph Ziggler, and he fused with Dean Ambrose for the title, and the match he has with Dean Ambrose um, at Backlash it's just so great. Those two have fantastic chemistry. And he's just been really great, you know, having top-tier main event matches, but also being able to mix it up and have side stories. Because the idea is that no one likes AJ Styles. AJ Styles is his own person, and everyone's gunning for him because he's so cocky and disrespectful, and he's the face that runs the place now, and he has to bring it up. And AJ Styles is just doing really well being the heel champion on a brand that has been, you know, rejuvenated this year with AJ Styles as the face of it. And I think just how quickly he went from being on the indies and being in New Japan to being a amazing presence on weekly WWE television and stealing the show constantly on their pay-per-views and specials, you know, that's insane. That's an incredible thing for me. And Next year, AJ Styles is going to be back on the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame ballot. I'm kind of biased. I think AJ has always been a slam dunk in-ring candidate. So, you know, I'm not going to say much there. But really, for what he's accomplished in 2016, becoming so important to WWE, you know, it's going to be hard not to consider him at least, you know, not a mid-level threat to get in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, AJ Styles should be in the Hall of Fame. That's without question. Easy vote. Um, really done it this year, like you said, shown depth and being able to do so much in WWE that you almost couldn't have seen coming unless you've been watching. That was kind of my 
take on AJ Styles when he jumped to New Japan. Everyone was like, oh my god, have you guys, you see how good he is? And it's like, AJ Styles has been this good for like 10 years. Yeah. It's like, oh my god, it's so surprising that AJ was able to become a big star on WWE. You know, unless of course you've been paying attention to AJ Styles, then you know it's not a surprise. Because he's that damn good. And he always has been that good. Yeah, it's just, I feel like, you know, AJ Styles, the last two years have been like confirmation for people that didn't already know AJ Styles was great. But it's also been like, you know, a gloating for people like me and you have been like, you know, AJ Styles has been great for a really long time. Just because you don't like TNA doesn't mean that AJ Styles hasn't been good. Exactly. So now we're in our top three, which means we're in crunch time. And I people feel... Have... <laughs> what oh, go were ahead. You... What were you saying? No, go. I was saying, you know, people have been paying attention, you know, I wonder who they think, that, like, who they think um, our orders are going to be. I think I know your order, and I wonder if you know mine. But I think it's going to be interesting, because I think who I'm about to say, we're going to be talking about later. Because my number three is Zack Sabre Jr. We'll be talking about him later. <laughs> Who's your number three? Because I think we'll be talking about him later. My number three is Chris Hero. Oh, Jesus, you threw me for a loop. <laughs> you thought he was going to be my number two? I did, because he's my number two. So let's talk about Chris Hero. Ah, oh, man. The same thing I was saying about AJ Styles, you know, having like the last two years kind of solidify the fact that he's an all-time great, is the same way I feel about Hero, but in a different way. Since Hero's been released from WWE... He had really good years in 2014 and 2015, but 2016 felt like, and he said, and it was, you know, he started calling himself the greatest of all time. I don't think it was, this was, you know, on accident or something that he was saying jokingly. I think 2016 was really the Chris Hero deserves to be in the greatest of all time conversation tour. That's what this was. Every single place that Chris Hero goes to, he has a goal of having the best match on the show every single time evolve and it usually succeeds yep usually succeeds you know from the bigger companies like you know evolve or aw or pwg or progress to even working in you know even working things like the scenic city invitational or working st louis anarchy or um god what was that company limitless yeah, Limitless, where that company that ran, you know, um, Hero versus Eddie Dennis, or like like everywhere he goes. Oh, yeah. His goal is to have the best match on the show, and that's what people are booking him for, because if you're booking Chris Hero, you want a banger on your show. You want Chris Hero, who I think in 2016, and it, it's weird to say, because I think Brian Daniels is the greatest wrestler of all time. But 2016 felt like Hero was challenging. Like, are you are you sure about this? Are you really really sure that Danielson's the best? Because I think I should be at that conversation too. And we kept you know we kept referencing the Chris Hero bully formula throughout the show because a lot of people have just had matches with Chris Hero that have been really good in that formula. But I think it goes understated just how deeply that formula runs, where he's done it with so many people in the list. You know, just goes on and on and on. You know, Jeff Cobb, Tracy Williams, Fred Yehi, Zack Sabre Jr., Mark Andrews. You know, he's done it with every single person possible. And the thing about Chris Hero is that he's not just limited to being a bully. 
If you remember Chris Hero's early career, the guy used to be a babyface. And not that he used to be a babyface, he's still really good at being a babyface. So he has matches with Roderick Strong and Marty Skrull and Pete Dunne where he's, you know, selling from underneath while he's still so big, you know, being, you know, 6'3", 6'4", 250 pounds, and he's wrestling smaller and allowing guys who are smaller than him to look big. You know, Roderick is known how strong he is, so maybe lesser extent with him, but Marty's girl, Marty's girl is significantly smaller than Chris Hero. But for some reason, when these two face each other, especially in that progress match, I'm um, at chapter 31. Marty Skrull feels like a star that's like on the same level as Chris Hero. And you have to cr- give Chris Hero credit there. Because even though Marty is great, Chris Hero doesn't eat Marty up. He shows that he's great too, but makes Marty seem like he's an even bigger deal. When Marty Skrull beats Chris Hero in the middle of the ring, you feel like Marty just toppled Godzilla, but it wasn't some like incapable feet throughout the course of the match you know Chris Hero sells his arm and sells the damage to it so well that it seems like it's all possible for Marty and I think that's a great balance and I'm, I said this when I would, um, wrote my article of Leaders and Wizards and it was about Zack Zach Sabre Jr. but in that article there was a portion of it about the Chris Hero versus Zack feud and I said something along the lines of how can someone expect to topple a man that walks the line between God and Godzilla. You know, he's a, you know, omnipotent deity of wrestling, but he also just murders everything that's in his path. And he's done it as a singles guy, but as a tag team guy, having two great tag teams and heroes eventually die in Death by Elbow where they're drastically different dynamics, but they still work based on the concept that they're going to kill you with strikes. And God, man, 2016 was the turning point in the Chris Hero greatest of all time conversation because after this I'm not sure how you can deny him at least earning a spot at the table when it comes to that stuff and now knowing that WWE should be bringing him in soon you know why it happened Chris Hero had a feeling that this may be his last year and he went all out and just had the most epic year possible I had a really, really hard time putting Chris Hero as my number two wrestler of 2016. Because 2016 was an epic year for Chris Hero. One that goes, probably will stand the test of time, honestly, as one of the all-time great years for a singular wrestler. The only thing that put him at number two was just as you talked about the formula I know there's so much more depth to Chris Hero but the one thing that I told myself was just you live in the the world the way that it is not the way it could be you judge the man for what he did not what he could have done and Chris Hero probably could have had totally different matches with everyone and they would have all been just as good or better but he did continuously have very similar matches because those are the matches that people wanted to see I can't blame the guy for giving the crowds, giving the promoters, and giving wrestling as a whole what it wanted for 2016, which was to have this amazing, larger-than-life, as you said, deity of wrestling, this god of wrestling that we had. He's not a king anymore. He's the king of kings of wrestling at this point. Um, I mean, everyone that he stepped in the ring with, he knocked it out of the park. 
Um, he made everyone look fantastic. He looked fantastic, as you said. You could make a, a bully style match, and he could have guzzled everyone up, and he really never did. He made sure that, that everyone got some shine, even if he made sure that they had to earn it, um, which is just so impressive that he never before, felt like he gave anyone anything. Before you like, I just want to like, no, you mention, like you mentioned how he didn't guzzle anyone up, and he gave people shine when they deserved he, it. Keep in mind that he did that exact same thing that we're talking about to Jushin Thunder Liger. Liger, who's been wrestling for, you know, 30 years, all-time legendary, you know, legendary isn't being used loosely here. Liger is a legend. Chris Hero is bullying Jushin Thunder Liger and doing it in a way where you believe that Chris Hero is going to, you know, end Liger's career the way he's beating the hell out of him. Yeah. And Liger takes every bit of it and comes back for the hottest comeback you've seen Liger have all year and just really, really, again, knocks it out of the park. And you feel like these are two two legends in the ring. Two legends having an epic war. Um, but stuff like the match with Big Daddy Walter stands out as something being totally different. Stuff like the match with um, Mark Andrews, the match with Prince Mustafa Ali. These matches stand out as being the real variants of the of the year, but so there was so much of the same and I thought it was amazing. And I definitely think that if you're just talking about great output and you're comparing him to anyone else, Chris Hero had one of the most amazing years a wrestler has ever had. Um, but when I'm thinking about the metrics of how I'm going to judge him and how I'm going to judge wrestling, that's why he didn't kind of edge out my number one spot this year. Yeah, so with that, our number two, well, you already gave your number two, you already gave your number three, and I assume I should probably give my number two, because he's, he's your number one. So, my number right. two my number two is Trevor Lee. So, and that's number one. So, do you want to go, so, so we should talk about Trevor Lee now. Yeah, I guess we should. Um, Trevor did it all everywhere, and Trevor didn't just do the same thing. And that's really what it came down to. That's why Matt Riddle was number 20 and Trevor Lee is number one. Trevor Lee was the spot guy in TNA who became the X Division champion and carried that division with car crashes. Trevor Lee was the fun kind of who-to-the-night guy in AAW working seven six-mans and trio tags and random comedy matches and just having a good time but still delivering really entertaining matches. But, you know, that was his lane, and he got there, and he filled it, and he made something special out of what he was doing to where he stood out. Uh, It Evolve throughout the year. Trevor Lee has had, you know, just he fit the style of Evolve. It's really a little bit more difficult to stand out and Evolve because I think they really are a little bit more controlling of what they want and they tell you what kind of match to have and you have it and he didn't really get a chance to kind of you know spread his wings that way and that it kind of shows because Trevor has been so good at filling a role and looking for a niche and completing it in PWG he I think saw that his hot baby face run was coming to an end and that Roderick Strong is kind of heading out 
and oh, the number one guy is now Zach Sabre Jr. from the UK. So he switches from coming out to Katy Perry to coming out to Born in the USA by um, by the boss. And he's this kind of pseudo-xenophobic heel. And he's the only heel getting any heat in the company. And it, it, again, it's he saw the, the, the vacuum, he saw the space, and he decided to fill it. And when Trevor Lee fills the space, he doesn't just... You know, oh, I'm just here playing my role. He makes the most of it, and he makes the most of every little thing. I mentioned once that there's a spot in Trevor Lee matches. Um, it's not always the same, but it is always the same. And it's the intensity turns up in the Trevor Lee match. And I noticed it early on. He'll have his hair up in a bun, and then out of nowhere... <laughs> He throws a big drop kick and his loose kind of whatever bun comes undone so that when he hits the ground and it's not always a drop kick and it's not always at the same time, but it comes out and then it's wild and then now the match is wild because his hair came down and he's wild. And it's little shit like that where you go like that, that's not just a coincidence how often that happens and how much he takes advantage of every little thing from his ring music to his characters to just everything he does is so calculated and so focused on making the full presentation. And then you get to CWF mid Atlantic where after all that other stuff that I just said, he is Ric Flair. Um, that's why Trevor Lee is number one and Chris hero is number two for me. Trevor Lee is Ric Flair. Chris hero, is Stan Hansen. Um, Chris hero is bull in the China shop. Wild crazy has the same match. He's going to barrel through you the whole way. But Trevor can do everything. He can make everyone look great. And he's the Iron Man. He has these hour, longer than hour, two, three hour long matches with epic storytelling. And he makes his opponents look like a million bucks no matter who they are. And at the end of it, he wins by hook or by crook. Is it, If he's cheating or if he's a valiant baby face, he's using technical wrestling a lot now in CWF because no one else is doing the kind of flashy Zack Sabre Jr. light stuff there so that's all his and it's just kind of it's so amazing the way that Trevor makes sure that he stands out with every little detail that he puts into his wrestling I believe every word that he says on every promo he might be goofy joking around with Andrew Everett in a tag team or he's serious I'm in a kill Brad attitude and I believe it both times like either way I always buy into Trevor Lee Trevor Lee in ring, I think, always has focus, is always telling a story, and as I said, is always trying to make sure that at the end of the night, there's something that Trevor Lee did that stood out to you. And 2016, I don't think he had very many misses at all. I don't think that there's really any anything that you can say Trevor Lee had a bad match. Um, he's had some, some opponents that were, you know, a little bit harder for him to work with. He recently had a match with ACH that I saw where it was really unfortunately very cartoony ACH selling and playing the Bugs Bunny role but Trevor kept trying to bring him back down to earth and have a serious match and it just kind of ended up going out of its way but you could tell that when Trevor said fuck it then we're just going to do this and he gets into the spot fest and I mean the guy can have a spot fest with ACH where he keeps up with him 100% so it's just it's hard to knock Trevor Lee he just does everything so perfectly and I mean a guy who can literally do everything and does it all so well. Up until October, 
Trevor had been my number one literally all year. Like, you know, pretty much from when Battlecade of 2015 came out to October of this year, my number one for most of that year, for most of the year had been Trevor Lee. And nothing changed to make Trevor Lee drop. It's just the other person I thought, you know, just for, for some reason overtook him. It wasn't anything Trevor Lee did wrong because what Trevor Lee did this year converted me who I wasn't a fan of Trevor Lee when I first saw him. I told, I like I to- talked about this when I wrote the article about Trevor Lee, a toast to the Carolina caveman, but I didn't like Trevor Lee at first. For some reason, something about him, something the way that he was pushed, rubbed Trevor Lee, well, made me, um, made Trevor Lee rub off of me the wrong way. But when I started watching CWF Mid-Atlantic every week this year, I saw a guy who was much different in the way than, you know, PWG presented him. He, you know, not the wide-eyed baby face who's getting lucky and getting, you know, lucky wins. He's smart, he's valiant, but he's, you know, way more calculated and skilled than in other places presented him. You you mentioned an AAW kind of a comedy figure. In TNA, he's an undercard guy. In PWG, he's a, you know, heel now, but he's the best, but he's the top heel in the company, you know, by default since Roderick Strong left, but it's still great heel work. In CWF, he's presented as the most skilled wrestler on the planet, and he fits that bill perfectly because the way he wrestles, he really is, he's the most skilled wrestler on the planet. The Roy Wilkins match, an infamous 105-minute match. The reason why that match works so well is because Trevor Lee himself is taking you on a roller coaster of everything he can do. He do, he shows every single thing in his arsenal. There is the great mat work, the great limb attacks, the great striking, the great selling, the great you know babyface comebacks, the great finishing sequences. Another thing about Trevor Lee, a great killer instinct. Whenever Trevor Lee says, fuck it, you're going to die, you feel that because it feels definitive whenever Trevor Lee goes for his for his last big move. That's something that's always great about him. And he was a valiant babyface in the Roy Wilkins match when he finally wins the CWF title. And I think that match is probably the best accomplishment in all of wrestling this year for all the weaving in of stories and the wrestling and everything about that is just a fantastic accomplishment. But after that, he goes on to have the best title reign, I'd say, since Brian Danielson, Brian Danielson, the Ring of Honor. That guy, every single time out there, is just so great. Working with Jesse Adler, who's only four years, five years younger than Trevor, but Trevor is working veteran against you know, against him. You know, trying to get the fire out of this young kid. And Trevor is working, you know, like a bit of a dick. He's bringing a chair into the ring. And taunting him, he dabbed in the middle of the match, you know, just toying with Jesse. But then once he realizes Jesse is starting to pick it up and, you know, start to um, get that fire, Trevor realizes that and he turns up too. So he puts the young guy in his place. And it's weird that someone so young can work a student versus mentor match. That doesn't even make sense to say, but Trevor Lee makes it work. And the Andrew Everett match, the John Schuyler match, Cedric Alexander match, match with Joshua Cutchell, the match with Rob McBride, the match with um, 
Otto, um, Otto Schwanz. Um, he just does it every single week. Match with Eric Royal. The tag team with Andrew Everett, where they had a match with Eric Royal, a match against Eric Royal and Ray Kandrak. Ultimate Survivor. You know, the Brad Attitude feud, where for four months it's been based on promo work and Trevor Lee getting more and more frustrated that Brad Attitude won't show up to the CWF Sportatorium and he's doing these promos every week. And God, dude, like in a company like CWF, like he, like everything, everything they do there has been really well done. But Trevor Lee is the crown jewel of that booking, and they go out there and they just make it work every time. And I, that's the like that's the reason why he's so high for me. The CWF work, but then you sprinkle in the variety that he has in other places, and that's the reason why he's above Chris Hero for me. Like you said, is that that variety is goes all across where wrestling can be. He's a comedy figure in AW. He's an undercard spot guy in TNA. And then he's the top heel in PWG, the premier indie in all of wrestling. You know, that kind of variety just doesn't happen, you know, that often while having a legendary championship reign. So Trevor Lee, just a fantastic year and the year that really made me a Trevor Lee fan. Without a doubt. So, I mean, we both agree Trevor Lee's number one. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, my number one, you know, wasn't really hard to figure out. He was your number three. My number one is Zack Sabre Jr. So, you had him lower than I had him. So, I guess you should probably go on first to why he was behind Hero and Trevor Lee. 2016 for Zack Sabre Jr. was in some ways kind of an interesting year in that he played off of a really hot 2015, breaking into a, being kind of more on everyone's like short list of great workers. Um, and he really created not really a formula, but a style and a niche. He created it for himself as this guy with the bag of tricks, the technical wizard. And he showed it off and everyone really kind of oohed and on for it. In 2016, I really felt like he took a step back in some ways in just his pure output of putting on amazing matches and started to try to work on developing a character a lot more and develop some stories more being more of a heel in places working, you know, that's, you know, like subtle heel, um, telling showing the cracks and evolve as he's slowly kind of, he's not that bright, shiny new toy. People are kind of figuring out how to beat him. Um, and it's just really interesting seeing that dynamic this year in some ways I liken it to what everyone kind of shit on about Thatcher during WrestleMania weekend of, of telling a story more than having great matches. But I think that Saber is still having phenomenal matches the whole way through. But I really think that 2016 was a lot more about story and character development than it was about just having the great matches. And, and he did a great job there, but I think, his PWG title run has has honestly kind of been slightly disappointing. Um, I mean, the bloom has gone off the rose there quite a bit. Just seeing him against Scroll last weekend, the crowd is not as 
rabid for him as they were. Um, missing a little bit for injury, not too much this year, but a little bit here and there, a couple dates. Um, and just, just realistically, I mean, he's my number three, so it's really hard to say what's so terrible. Why isn't he better than Trevor? It's Zach is Zach everywhere. He's got some subtle details he's been putting in here and there, working a little bit more heel. But I feel like stuff like the big two out of three falls match against Champa at the big show for progress. It, it unfortunately was a big miss misstep. And in big time situations like that, a guy like Zach just can't be misstepping or else that's what's kind of the chink in the armor. And it's like hero doesn't have those big time missteps. He doesn't have the matches that really need to deliver that don't deliver. And, and again, Trevor, it comes down to just how, fantastic he's been at so many different roles all year and fitting everything and really being believable everywhere on the card while Zach I feel like Zach can be a credible main event style worker but I don't think he has he hasn't really worked any other style this year than main event style and I haven't really seen Zach rounding out other parts of the card at all it's you kind of are getting a really similar match everywhere, and he's phenomenal at it. And as I said, there is more depth and psychology to it, and I see it, but it's not as prevalent, and it's not out in the front as much, so it's a lot more subtle, and it's a lot, a little bit harder to pick up. And um, I really appreciate it and think he's great, but I just think that Hero and, and Trevor really blew him out of the water when it came to just pure, like, great match output, and then also when it came to really depth of skill um other than Chris Hero I don't think anyone had more great matches than Zack Sabre Jr. this year uh when I look at my match of the year document the guy like the only person ahead of them is Chris Hero when it comes to matches I've given four stars or higher to and maybe if I double checked he may even have more I don't know but as far as in-ring output, the only person that I think has been better is Chris Hero. The reason why Zach is my number one is that even though consistently I think he probably has the best match on a show. And yes, you mentioned the Ciampa match from um, Progress chapter, 36, chapter 36. I thought that was Zach's worst match of the year. I didn't like Zach versus Marty from Evolve 61. I didn't like Zach versus Tazawa from PWG Lemmy. You know... There is matches where I can say that I didn't like them. But I think what Zach's peak and Zach's output, and especially Zach's character, outweighs that. You know, I can go on and on about the nuance of Zach Sabre Jr.'s character, but I really feel like 2016, you start to see, you know, the impenetrable, you know, technical wizard start to fall apart. When he first started getting big in the U.S., you know, 2014, 2015, you know, he was kind of untouchable, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Like no, dude, that's exactly what I was saying. Like, the dude was untouchable when he first came here. In 2016, like you said, it was I think it was more focused on character work, but I think that character work is so strong that it, wasn't, that it forced him to be my number one. Because like I said when we're talking about Trevor, until about October of this year, Trevor was my number one. What happened is that Zach had this amazing, amazing turn at WXW during our World Tag League. And throughout the World Tag League, 
you know, his tag team partner, Marty Scurll, who he had known for so many years. And he knew villain, he knew um, Marty before this whole villain persona took off. And Marty is trying to get Zack to cheat to go along with what he's doing. And Zack, you know, reluctantly is doing it. And when we get to the final one, they're facing Shane Strickland and David Starr. Zack, for some reason, snaps on David Starr. And once we get to the final, you know, closing moments of the match, Zack, you know, snatches the title belt from Marty, title belt from Marty Skrull, who you would assume that is about to use it because he's a guy named the villain. You would think that Zack, the gentleman, the technical wizard, is going to take the belt away and reprimand Marty for cheating. He doesn't. He takes the belt and he just smashes David Starr or, Jane, or Shane Strickland, I forgot which one, over the head with it. And it's that kind of moment and those kind of moments that why I love Zack Sabre Jr. so much. Because he has this character that was untouchable, the technical wizard. He's going to best you with his wit, his superior wrestling intellect. That's what he should be doing, but that's not who he is. He's a guy that for years was fighting and scratching and clawing to make a name for himself wrestling guys like, you know, Claudio, Castagnoli, and Brian Danielson. He used to be a skinny, pale kid with long hair. The Zack Sabre Jr. that we know now isn't the same Zack Sabre Jr. we knew five, six, seven years ago. He is a completely new person. This is a completely new persona. And that's exactly what it is. It's a persona. And when that persona starts to crack, you see Zack Sabre Jr. get nasty and get vicious and get dangerous. People talk about Zack Sabre Jr.'s matches feeling too exhibition-like. I think that's complete bullshit. I think he's a guy where he has a really clear nastiness when he starts to get pissed off. The way he starts twisting somebody's joints. The way he starts kicking people. The way he starts stomping on people's heads. The way he flexes when he puts someone in a submission. He gets cocky and nasty and angry and feels disrespected that this person even thinks they should be in the same ring with him. You know, the Jeff Cobb match from RPW. People talk Jeff, People talk about Zack having to wrestle a Zack Sabre Jr. match. Well, in that match, they completely debunked that because Jeff Cobb bested Zack Sabre Jr. At his, own, at his own game. Grappling. Zack Sabre Jr. had to completely readjust what he did just to survive that match. He had to chop the big man down and kick him 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 and, kick him and keep doing it over and over again until he could squeak out a victory against Jeff Cobb, who's a complete freak of nature. You know, the Chris Hero feud is storied. The reason why I mentioned the Chris Hero feud is because there's always this bit more intense feel for, for Sabre versus Hero. We mentioned how Hero's bully formula matches, you know, kind of feel the same. But when he's facing Zack, it feels different. There's more of a student versus teacher feel. And it's not student versus teacher. You know, like Hero is old and washed up and Zack is the young upstart. It's more like Hero is still the best wrestler in the world. He's known Zack for a really long time. And now Zack is trying to get that throne. And whenever Zack challenges Hero for that throne... Hero gets pissed. Hero doesn't like it. There's guys like Thatcher and like Zack Sabre Jr. that whenever Hero wrestles them, he feels like his place in the world is getting challenged and that he has to reaffirm that he's the best. And Zack Sabre Jr. does his best selling there because he's getting annihilated by Hero in every single match they have. And it's always 
a really great finish, and Hero always kills him. But it's you know super great to see he, like Zack try to survive and beat Indy Godzilla one more time. I'm obviously a big fan of the Skillogy with Jonathan Gresham and Zack Sabre Jr. And I talked it up initially when it first happened in July and August, and I was a big fan of it then. But then I went back and rewatched the um you know little promos and ma- pr- promos, and then I rewatched the American Rana match. And the story gets even more clearer, you know, once you hear some like some of the post match stuff. Like after the first match, Zack Saber Jr. is politely asking for a rematch. He's not angry, he's not mad. He lost by a fluke pin combination, so he's like, Ah, I've known you for a long time, Gresham, you're a cheeky bastard. You know, you mind if I get another match? It was super polite, he's a sportsman still. After that flesh match, Zack Saber Jr. is pissed off to the highest degree. Whatever happened to him after that match, and the reason why he's pissed is because he's a technical wizard and he just tapped out. There's no bigger, you know, bruise to a technician's ego than making them submit. So after that match, Zack Saber Jr. is pissed. He he not only asks for a match, he demands it, and demands it be two out of three falls at that. And we get to American Rana, and rewatching that match. I, that had to be my match of the year because there's no other match I feel that strongly about. You know, I will defend that match so much because that's the pinnacle of storytelling to me. Like, that storytelling and the way they did that is so great. The intensity, Zack's nastiness attacking Gresham. He's completely out of this technical wizard character and he just wants to win by any means necessary. He's stomping on Gresham Gresham's neck. He, like is asking for a knockout. Like, he... I don't think anyone ever really goes for the knockout in a 2 out of 3 falls match. But Zack Sabre Jr. just stomps and stomps on Gresham's head, and he's demanding for a knockout. And he's killing Gresham's neck, but at the same time, Zack Sabre Jr. is selling his leg so great. And that's the best Zack Sabre Jr. performance I've ever seen. The match output, you know, wrestling a guy like Keith Lee... And Keith Lee, who's a great wrestler, but the match versus Zack Sabre Jr. from Tournament for Today is one of the more uniquely structured Keith Lee matches I've seen so far because it's Keith Lee dominating Zack Sabre Jr. and then Zack having to find a way to win. It's similar to the Jeff Cobb match, but to a way where Zack only found a way to win by getting a sneaky pin combination. You know, it's stuff like that where I think Zack can be a really nasty down and dirty, grimy, striker, brawler, heel. He's a great heel when he's given the chance to and when he wants to be a heel. But then I've seen him be, you know, a babyface. You know, like that match with Roderick Strong from All-Star Weekend when he finally wins the PWG title. You know, that's great stuff there when he beats AJ Styles. Or I think for how much Zack does, you know, I think it just goes, you know, underappreciated because... He's not like in your face in what his character is. It really is a lot of nuance and paying attention to Zack Sabre Jr.'s entire career trajectory. And I understand that for some people that's a lot of effort and digging for something that you may think that may not you may think that's not even there. But for me, it's been super rewarding to watch Zack Sabre Jr. become this person because it feels like in every match 
is that you're going to get a different Zack Sabre Jr. Not because he's working a different gimmick, not because he's working a different spot on the card, because you don't know how Zack Sabre Jr. is feeling that day. He may be a little pissed off. He may be a little angry. He may be a little playful. He may be a little cheeky. But it all depends on where he is that given day because you're not sure how angry Zach is going to be. And this isn't even mentioning his tag team work. You know, the I really like the tag team dynamic he had with Sammy Callahan over that January Evolve weekend where it was, you know, supposed to be a power team, but they just couldn't coexist. And it doesn't work out in the end. And Sammy Callahan is just pissed at this guy. And it shows vulnerability in Zach, where people think Zach always has to be Teflon. Zach is untouchable. You have to do what Zach wants. No, Zach that entire weekend looked like a geek. He got his ass kicked that weekend. He shows vulnerability way more than people ever give him credit for. He can work a match without even striking. You know, that match with Gulak from Evolve 73 that I'm so upset that I couldn't get to go to live because they worked this brilliant match that has zero striking at all. And all it is is just really smart grappling and limb work. And, you know, it's just he does so much that it's hard for me to comprehend sometimes that people think he's boring or hard to get into because he's done so much this year that, you know, like I said, other than Hero, he's had the best output. But what's puts him over the top is the character work for me. I agree with you completely on like everything there and I think what would have put him probably at the number one spot is if any company had booked him as a strong heel Yeah, like in the past few months I think October would have been the time where as you said that's where he went to your number one if I think someone had really firmly booked him as a heel 100% then I would have put him at my number one spot but because everywhere he's kind of tween teasing heel at the most. Yeah. Um, I just, I need to see it. And I told him that myself in person. I just said, I'm really excited to see a big, you know, heel run from him. And it's just, that's what I, that's what I need. Like he's great. He's definitely one of the greatest, but if he had had a full fledged, completely heel run, I think he would have been my wrestler of the year for 2016, but it just, it just didn't happen yet. Um, so, you know, still excited for 2017. Cause I, couldn't imagine a dark turn and could you see a world where Zack Sabre Jr. is the heel and Matt Riddle is the face and evolve for 2016 feuding over the title because that sounds pretty great to me oh yeah that's what I want I'm hoping that's the direction they go in and speaking to you you know not have you know the reason why it wasn't you know maybe higher is that he didn't have a definitive heel run and I think that's kind of why I like Zack the way he is yeah I would like a definitive heel run too but I like that kind of Nuance that Zach always teeters and teeters and teeters to be, you know, going to the dark side and just losing his mind. But he can reel it in sometimes. In WXW, in that tag league, he just lost it. Like that was complete dark side. He hasn't been back in WXW since, I think. But if they capitalized on that and had him like as a strong heel challenger for the unified title after that, that would have been fantastic stuff. But, you know, other than that, I think he's always good adjusting his character to how we dep- like how he wants to work it that day, and like I said, match output. God, dude, just like looking at it, you know, AJ Styles, Thatcher, Osprey, Trevor Lee, Roddy, 
Adam Cole, Kyle O'Reilly, Tommy Yen, Mascara Dorada, Johnny Gargano, Drew Gulak, Sammy Callahan, Travis Banks, Cedric, Martin Stone, David Starr, Jigsaw, Matt Riddle, Trent Seven, Michael Logan, Pete Dunne, and I could keep going, but that output is even more ridiculous too. And I've always liked Zack. What's, what's, what's funny is that my first exposure to Zack was like him wrestling in Noah and teaming with Ogawa. So I had never seen any of his UK work, you know, up until maybe three years ago. So once he comes over to the US, you know, I think he's really good. I like him. But this year is when it became, okay, Zack Sabre Jr. is the most interesting character in wrestling to me because he's kind of complex. But at the same time, he's not because he's just a, you know, conflicted man. Like he's not like some weird, twisted WWE character. He just seems to be a regular person that goes through cranky moods and all that stuff, just like everyone else. There is something to that that depth, and I think that Zack Sabre Jr. in some ways is the most interesting character in wrestling in 2016 because of it being so subtly nuanced, um, as you said, as just really being a believable, real person. Yeah, so that's our list. Before we wrap it up, um, are there any surprises that you had about my list? Were there any changes that you, you know, had last minute, like about what you were doing, you know, anything that you would change if you had the chance to? No. Um, the Chris Hero thing was the hardest thing for me. Um, and even last to the last minute, I was thinking about it, but I just, I had the resolve to keep him, keep it where I was at and have Trevor Lee at number one. Um, I guess the biggest shock is that I kind of expected us to have both have Chris Hero at number two and to have Trevor and Zach kind of flipped. But, uh, I guess I should have expected what I got. Um, I guess the biggest surprise for me is I knew you would have Pete Dunn high, but Number four was like, okay, like that's really high, even higher than I had him. And I had him, you know, in my top 20. But I guess I should have expected that because after you said Mark Haskins, you know, after we ended the um, second episode, I'm like, huh, he hasn't said Pete Dunn yet. Then it should have crossed my mind, like, damn, he's going to have him really high, isn't he? Yeah, and you know what's funny is that Pete Dunn is a guy that I wouldn't have called number four until I actually put the list together. Right, you so know, just, and that's right. So you just kind of like put it together. And then I was like, "Huh, Pete Dunn's better than this guy. Pete Dunn's better than this guy." Oh, then you yeah. look up, then you look about your list. And it's like, damn, he's all the way up at number four. Exactly. That's really what kept happening. I'm just like, he's done so much. He's done more than this guy. Done more than this. Had I've enjoyed his matches more. You know, and he just he kept creeping up. I mean, I thought Ricochet was probably going to be in that in that range, and then you know, Ricochet, Pete Dunn and, and Grisham ended up kind of edging him out. Right. So that's it for our top 50 wrestlers of 2016. I think at the end of this, we've compiled um, about seven hours of audio. I think it's longer, but pretty close to that. (laughs) If you listen to all of it, thank you so much. Yeah, this is a lot of talking about, you know, a lot of people. So any plugs you want to get out the way before you sign off here? Uh, follow me on Twitter at Lucha Undead. I think at this point you probably don't want to hear me talk anymore, so just read my tweets. <laughs> um, follow me on Twitter at QT underscore Moody. The next episode of Psychology is Dead will be The Art of Delayed Selling, and that will be done with Mr. Trask Bryant, the owner of Wrestling With Words. So look, um, look out for that. 
And I mentioned, I think I mentioned it at the last, at the, at the end of part two, but myself, Brad, I'm trying, Brock and Trask will be doing our top 100 matches of 2016 podcast. I don't know how many parts that will be. There's going to be hell to do. You know, we just did, you know, seven or eight hours. I don't even, can't even imagine how long that's going to take. But, you know, be on the lookout for that. You know, we're going to try to start recording those in the second week of January. Um, Thank you all for listening to this long journey, talking about a lot of different men and women. Thank you all for listening. Hope you're here next time.